Today we're talking to Jeff Tyson. <clears throat> he is a guitar hero. Um, he studied from a guy called uh, Joe Satriani. And he's one of two people that Joe Satriani has said that uh, he's graduated from his um, teachings. And uh, Joe Satriani is a, a famous guy in the, in the rock and roll guitar world and has been for years. Um, Jeff was uh, brought up in Berkeley in California. And uh, at that time... Uh, the music scene there was buzzing. It was Metallica, Megadeth, Testament. A lot of those kind of heavier metal bands were transforming the, the music industry. He went into a band when he was, I think, 15 or 16. He, he basically has never done anything else than music. And uh, he had a band that had a contract. They made an album. They got played on MTV, the works. And then it all collapsed. And, uh, yeah, it, when things... Couldn't have got worse, then they got a little bit worse. And he told me about all these things and then how he kind of uh, got himself into knowing everything about production and engineering so that he could make a career um, of being involved in music and, and related things uh, without necessarily having to be in a mega band or, or anything like that. And how he got into Prague. Um, yeah, the state of rock and roll today, is it dead or not? Um, just can rock and roll and political correctness and wokeism coexist? So, yeah, it was an interesting chat, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys will as well. Uh, the sponsors, Alfred Jobs, Alfred.cz, um, and in the App Store, you can find jobs that are relevant to you. You don't need to browse a million other jobs, uh, and you get them sent to you whenever a new job comes. So, basically, Alfred does the job for you of finding a job. Uh, Alfred.cz in English, Czech and Slovak and then the old bar Prague a uh, great place with old meals skier um, in-house recipe of skier that is not available anywhere else in the country uh, healthy goodies great juices, great coffee amazing service uh, always a smile, highest rating in, in the delivery stores here Vault and Bolt and um, high rating on Google, Facebook, anywhere people love it simply, They're, yeah so you got to check it out, find them, and uh, come and buy something or get it sent home or just show some love on social media. Enjoy, guys. Welcome, Jeff Tyson, to the bunker. How are you? Very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I had a guy yesterday called Jeff with a J. And uh, funnily, he wrote me in and asked me if, if we were going to see each other. And I d hadn't put on my glasses and I thought it was you. And I said, no, 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 we're, we're, not, we're not seeing each other until <laughs> that day and that day. So it's funny that I have two Jeffs, but written differently. Yours is G-E-O-F-F. -F. That's right. But you would say Jeff. Yeah, Jeff, uh, if my understanding is that is the original traditional spelling of mm. the name Jeff, like uh, because my mother was an English literature professor. Mm -hmm. So the spelling Jeffrey, for example, the author Jeffrey Chaucer spelled it the same way as mine. Uh, so I, uh, my, I'm an originalist. How about that? Yeah, yeah the real deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So you're from California. We met here through a mutual friend in 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 Prague um, at a party. And I yeah, I kind of started digging in and and uh, found out that you have at least three albums on on Spotify, and I can find another album on YouTube, older material. And you've kind of been in rock and roll since what eighty. I actually did my first recording session. It was 1985. Wow. And I've been on tons and tons of records, you know, mo- most of them out of print from, you know, back in the 80s and 90s. Mm. But there's a few that have actually, excuse me, <clears throat> there's a few that have actually um, stayed in print. Mm. And um, those, I got one of them now from you. Yes, I hope you enjoy yeah. it. <laughs> the latest one. And, um, you know, that's the thing about music is some sometimes something connects with somebody and they mm. hold on to it. Other times you you do a recording session for some cash and then you never hear the song again. Yeah, it just kind of happens. But but what are you? Are you a rock star? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I suppose that's a kind of a mentality mm. that. But unfortunately, that's been kind of warped for example when i go out to a club in prague and i see people who um they act like they're rock stars or act like how they imagine rock stars must act Mm. they're destructive and they're drunk and they mistreat women and they're they're generally rude and they think that it's uh an acceptable kind of a caricature that they can play Mm. um but without actually having contributed anything musically to the world i don't know like when i was uh i was mixing an album in hollywood i guess it was 1990 or 91 Mm. and um david bowie was staying in my hotel and i saw him Mm. in the lobby and he's a little guy and he had the security guard i swear was three meters tall and two meters wide he was the biggest dude i've ever seen in my life Mm. with this you know, wide, generous smile on his face, making eye contact with people in the lobby. We went up to him and just said, fucking hell, David Bowie, big fan, nice to meet you. And he was this lovely guy. Mm. He sat and spoke with us for a few minutes and he was was kind and he remembered our names at the end. And we were like, you know, teenage schoolgirls coming out of there. Like, oh my God, we just met David Bowie. And if you're going to call anybody... A rock star, I would say David Bowie's pretty, he's a rock star. And he was a lovely guy. He yeah. wasn't rude. He wasn't trying to spit on anybody. So I do try to be like that. I try to be a gentleman. I try to be kind. I try to care about other people. I guess it's not really what you <laughs> would stereotypically call a rock star, but. Mm. But I, you're a musician. Is that, can we settle for that? Yes, absolutely. I am that. Yeah, but and, and an engineer and and I mean you, yeah. Well, I mean uh, to be a musician, unless you're an absolutely brilliant songwriter, you know where you can uh, make that one hit wonder that pays the bills for the rest of life. Yeah, if you can if you can entertain the world with your acoustic guitar and your voice, great. But I mean, for the rest of us, you need to have a pretty um, um, wide array of skills mm. you need to be a musical uh, renaissance man or woman. Mm. Mm. so in in uh, my case I've uh, learned the engineering and production as an extension of my uh, songwriting expression mm. so mm. 
But yeah, so you're you're born in in San Francisco, right? Uh, Berkeley, California, which is right across yeah, the bay from San uh, Francisco. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Is that a, is that an insult to say that someone is from San Francisco? Who's no, from no, 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 not at all. It's the no? it's the San Francisco Bay Area. So it's not like Oakland versus San Francisco, or there was never any real competition. It was that's all from the hip hop songs, but I never felt any of that. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, Berkeley, sorry, and and uh, big family. Um, kind of. Uh, my mother was originally from from Egypt. Uh, she grew up in Cairo and then emigrated to the United States uh, to go to university. I, eventually, she got a PhD and started teaching at the University of California, which is where she met my father. Mm. Father is only child. Uh, my mother has extended family back in Egypt, but I only know a few of them. Mm. And um, so it's, yeah, it's a huge family. I'm just not super aware of all of it. But how is it like Egypt? Did you have some traditions that that came from that side, or I mean, how how did that? Did yeah, was it visible somehow in your life? Well, my mother used to take me there uh, every summer, starting from when I was two. Mm. So I spent six weeks of every year in Cairo with the the, the immediate family, her brothers and sisters, and mother. Mm. And uh, yeah, and that whole, I mean. Growing up around that, of course, it's it it it's worn off on my personality, mm. on my my understanding of music, and um, yeah, generally my um, perception of of patience, as I guess you would say, the uh, the Egyptian compared to the Californian attitude is pretty um, polar opposite. Uh huh. And it, more relaxed. Uh, no, no, they're very they're a very conservative family. Mm. Um, and uh, how would you say they're they're um, they're very Egyptian. They have you know they like to haggle. They're you know it's misogynistic. The man um, talks over the woman, even if the woman is is smarter and is correct. And you don't you know you're not allowed to have these opinions, mm. even if you're correct. And um, you know being a, a, a strong headed California guy. It really had no no patience or tolerance for that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, 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 that was my own little re rebellion as a as a child. Mm. But what what and but there, there, you told me once we were talking that there was some story about that family on your mother's side, like uh, around World War Two or something, right? Yeah, my my great grandfather was a duke on the court of the last. Um, Egyptian pharaoh who was uh, King Farouk uh -huh. and he was deposed and then replaced by the first uh, democratically elected president which was uh, President Abdul Nasser mm. my grandfather was a senator uh, working with Abdul Nasser now my understanding is and I'm actually still uh, um, kind of learning about this family but my understanding is that uh, Abdul Nasser was uh, a socialist and that when the royalty fell, it 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 the 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 royal family was allied with England mm. in a sort of a kind of a pseudo colonial way. And mm. when that fell, and it became a socialist thing, like the uh, the the British didn't like that. No, they, they he they felt he he stabbed them in the back. Yeah, and um um. The, the public in general was against 
uh, the royalty. And uh, my understanding is that when all of this was transitioning, um, my grandfather found out that the government was going to seize a lot of their land. Mm-hmm. They were very, very wealthy. Um, you know, they had houses all over Cairo. They had land and farms and things like that. And so he said, rather than having the government take it and redistribute it, he went to the peasants that were actually working on the land and said, I'm giving this to you. Mm-hmm. So he kept one or two properties for himself and his family, gave everything else away. And so even now, like when we would go travel, um, you know, through the desert of the farmlands and people would know the family name because that was what, where they, uh, where their family got their start. Uh-huh. But finding the history of that family has been a bit elusive and I'm still kind of, uh, doing that research. But did it, uh, so your mom is born in Egypt, but comes to, to study in, 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 in California. And then, I mean, how is it like, I don't know, <laughs> did that affect your childhood somehow? I mean, were you, Were you supposed to, I don't know, be more Egypt? <laughs> um, no, it was... It, it was a traditional American household or... or, or yeah, how? I mean, my, my father is, is a, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed American boy, but yeah. born and raised in Berkeley, California. Uh, grew up during the, you know, the, the Depression, fought in World War II. I mean, very just as American as you can get. Mm. And um, the... Uh, Egyptian side of my mother's personality, she tried to diminish that, you know, like she had the American hairstyle and the type of uh, dress, I guess they they met in the 1960s. Mm. They weren't quite hippies, but they were trying to be fashionable. Mm. And uh, she tried to hide her uh, her Egyptian accent. And so we were raised as American kids, but there was always something, you know, Egyptian aspect. When she would get angry, for example, she would start swearing at us in Arabic. That was, that was always good for a laugh. Yeah. Then you knew she was angry. <laughs> and what kind of kid were you? Were you, you know, a good kid or a trouble kid? Or I was a good kid. I wasn't rebellious. I, you know, my parents were very reasonable. They didn't have uh, any, um, you know, just let me be a kid. And as long as I didn't burn the house down, everything was pretty much good. And mm. So um, I never really had any big rebellious instances mm. and they and you you started learning instruments right yeah when i w- i guess i was three years old my mother because my mother's family is very musical everybody plays piano uh-huh um classically trained and my mother said okay well now it's your turn so i was dragged once a week to uh, mrs kellogg who was this uh, lovely woman who had the patience to teach three-year-olds And started in on classical piano. Mm. And it was, um, w- when I was a little kid, I was a bit cross-eyed. And mm. it was very difficult for me to read music. Mm. But I found it was very easy for me to remember it. If I, had, if, I, if I heard it played, then I could just remember it and then emulate it that way. Uh-huh. And uh, even though we were learning sight reading, I never actually learned how to do that and i just i fooled everybody for like nine years whoa i was just i just would have to have it would it played to me and you know most of the the classical melodies are you know quite popular and you, you can recognize them and so it wasn't really difficult for me to remember them 
Mm. But then it was just, okay, left hand does that, whatever. And then just stare at the paper blankly and pr- <laughs> just so they wouldn't yell at me. But that was, yeah, that was basically my piano lessons. But but you you um, you said dragged. She Is dragged it, you. Well, no kid wants to spend his weekends, you know, playing piano. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was a continuous thing all the way up until I was 12 years old. And it's time for your piano lesson. For fuck's sake, really? God. But did, were you good? Were you any good? I mean, or was it easy for you or, or you know, it came naturally or? I think I was, I, I did what was required of me. But later as I got older, uh, they, I mean, it was, it was specifically classical piano and which, you know, in the times of disco and they, you know, the piano teacher said, well, we're going to do something a little different this time and would try to get me to learn some Diana Ross song or something. And uh, I would just do what was necessary, but it never really, you know, held my interest passionately. Just mm. kind of just try to get it over with and, you know, jumping through the hoops. Yeah. But do you then eventually you pick up the guitar? How how did that come around? There was, I guess I was about 12 or 13 and started getting exposed to uh, rock and pop music. And I, it was, uh, I think it was ACDC and Van Halen. Mm. And somehow I don't remember how I got hold of these, these albums. And I was listening, it was the first Van Halen album. And, you know, grooving on it just because of the energy and the tones. The second track on that album is called Eruption, and it's just mm-hmm. an open guitar solo. Yeah. And was listening to that thinking, like, wow, the keyboardist in this band is amazing. How is this even possible? And I was looking at the album cover, looking for the, the credits, like, I wonder who plays keyboards on this. And there is no keyboardist in this band. And it was at that time I realized that that's a fucking guitar. Holy shit. And that's when I knew. I said, okay, there's no more piano for me. Mm. And uh, I have a half brother on my my father's side called me and said, Jeffrey, if you quit piano, you're going to regret it forever. And your music is a skill that you know. You can they applied the pressure blah, on blah, you. Blah 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 blah. And I said, Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to start playing guitar. And that was about that. There was nothing that was going to stop me at that point. Yeah. I said, Oh, okay. I'll continue piano just because I got a nice phone call one afternoon. No, I don't think so. Mm. And and and. Uh and you, you, your first guitar. There's a story around that one. You know, you, you bought it, or your father? No, you bought it yourself, right? No, I, I was, I was, thirteen. So my dad got it for me. Mm. I told him I wanted to play guitar, and he said okay. And he took me to uh, the uh, classical guitar shop that was in town, mm. and the salesman tried to sell us one of these beautiful nylon string classical guitars, and I was like, no, this not. This is not, not, not Eddie really, Van Halen. Yeah. That's not direction I was going. And my father, I mean, he just, he didn't know. He was saying, well, it seems like, you know, you should learn the traditional skills first and then graduate over to blah, 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 blah. And uh, no, no, let's just, let's just get, get this right the first time. So I dragged him to um, a guitar center, which is a big, massive music store in San Francisco. And uh, it was a Gibson ES-335 solid body which mm. is a very unusual guitar mm. uh but it was a great guitar it played well and it was cute and um it i was obsessed with this thing i never put it down and 
uh, I got good really quickly. Mm. So he was like, okay, fuck it. He likes the thing. I guess he, let's continue in that way. Mm. How much did you pay for it? I believe it was $265. Mm. But you bumped into that guitar later, right? Yeah. And, and, it, and, and I guess it was in 1998 or something. That's like 15 years <laughs> on, 17 years on, right? Yeah. Because I, I had sold the guitar. Uh, it, I, could, I, I moved on to a different style of, of instrument and I ended up selling this. And, and who, who knows the story of how it ended up back at a different guitar center used. But by this time, it was considered a classic instrument because they're very rare. Mm. And I saw it. <laughs> I recognized there was a there was a, a piece broken out of it that I had done. I don't remember if I dropped it or whatever. I said, "That's my guitar. That's my old guitar." And they were asking ridiculous money for it. Mm. And I told the salesman, "Hey, this." He, he didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but you you went on to have guitar lessons, right? Yeah, I had my. Again, the parents thinking, well, he has to learn the traditional stuff first. Mm. So I got sent to a a, a jazz teacher. Mm. I, I can't remember his name, but it was being stuck in this little cubicle with this chain smoking, um, just a nasty, bitter man. <laughs> and he didn't want to be there. He certainly didn't want to be teaching some 13-year-old kid. And I wanted to learn how to play Black Sabbath, right? And, mm -hmm. and he's like, no, you're going to learn jazz first. And looking back at the, the first lessons that he gave me, I'm pretty sure he was trying to scare me off. He was trying to piss me off. He gave me a really complicated circle of fifths jazz chord progression mm -hmm. without ever telling me, for example, where on the guitar neck is B. Mm -hmm. So he's like, okay, it's circle of fifths. You're going to go through the, the B, E, A, D, G, C and so on and so forth. Then you cycle around, you go up an octave. Here's your lesson. Go fuck yourself. Uh, light the cigarette. And I took it home and sat with the piano. And so, okay, well, there's B. It's on this fret. And uh, and these actually really complicated chords. And this is my first lesson. Mm. And sat there and fucking fingered these fucking chords out without any concept of how... This was certainly not suitable in any way for a beginner, for a beginner. <laughs> and came back and I had scribbled notes in pencil all over the paper that he gave me. And he saw that and he's like, ah, and you erased all my notes. This is cheating. You don't cheat and jazz. And, um, but I played through the thing and he sat there chain smoking and soloing over this progression. And he said something stupid and then sent me on my way. The next lesson was more the same. Mm. And I said something like, you know, I'd really like to learn some rock and roll techniques. You know, <laughs> you could show me, show me some of that also. Uh, this is for jazz. You know, you're here to learn jazz. So I never went back to him. Uh, ended up with uh, lessons with this guy, a local guitar player in Berkeley named Robbie Dunbar, who had a quite popular band at the time. And he's a great guy, a good player. Mm. But I at that point had kind of discovered cause I have big hands and I discovered that I how to use them and started getting really, really good. By the time I'd been playing for six months or something, he said, I don't think I can teach you anymore. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but there's this guy in town, his name is Joe Satriani, and he teaches all the really great guitar players. He's fantastic. If you can get in, I highly recommended it. So I looked the guy up. They called me back and said, yeah, I got a spot. Let's try it out. Mm. And uh, I went in there, and holy shit, this guy was good. I said, okay, I'm going to have to stick with this guy. He can teach me stuff. And he wasn't very old himself, right? I mean, he must have been just a few years older than you. Yeah, well, let's see. Five, this was five, 90, six. 1990, uh, 1983. Mm. I actually don't really even know how old he is, to mm. tell you the truth. Mm. But, but Joe Satriani, just for the ones listening, you know, he's one of those kind of great virtuoso guitarists, you know, that everyone who plays guitar knows Joe Satriani. You know, if my mom is listening to this, she might not know him, but pretty much everybody that listens to any kind of rock music will know Joe Satriani, right? Yeah, he's a legend. Yeah. He, absolutely. And he, you know, he sells out concerts all over the world. But he back then, when you were with him, he's... He was just the guy that taught guitar at the mm. corner store. He had that same horrible little cubicle. He didn't chain smoke, thank God. Mm. And no jazz. <laughs> well, unless you ask for it. Mm. like Because he, he's actually a great jazz player as well. Mm. You wouldn't know because he doesn't you know, uh, do that kind of style commercially. Mm. But what I specifically said was, I want to you know, play the heavy metal at the time, this Eddie Van Halen rock kind of, you know, super active type of uh, guitar playing, which he's an expert at mm. and just got straight through it. And, um, and he, he, a few weeks in our lessons, he said, I really have to uh, kind of check myself when I realize that you've only been playing for six months. I can't, fathom that that's true because you know you're you know i have to ignore that because you're way better than most people have been playing for six months mm -hmm. and that's kind of how our um uh our relationship continued he ended up booking my lesson at the end of each day so that if it went long and they frequently went two or three hours long mm -hmm. even though it was really supposed to just be an hour and you know we would just Jamming. Yeah, we would explore a concept, and then it would, you know, he would invite other guitar players, other of his students in, mm -hmm. and um, and then we would talk about, f you know, philosophical stuff about fashion and about guitar tones, mm. and uh, so he he really became um, a, uh, a I, I was just a sponge, and he was just a, a mentor mm. to mm. me. He later said, so I saw somewhere that he. He considers two guitar players to have kind of graduated from him, which is one of them is you, and the other one is Steve Y, which is another big name in the guitar business. Yeah, I mean the the uh, at the point where you were able to teach yourself, I'm guessing, or at least you can uh, you can say that a student is going off in an artistic direction, mm. and you don't need to catch up with him because he's doing okay. Mm. I mean, obviously, he didn't teach me absolutely everything he knows, but I mean that there's there was a certain point where I knew what my style was going to be. and then I Yeah, was yeah, because you go off to an individual direction, I guess. Yeah, you know, exactly. Everybody does. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you, like, at this time, I mean, like we're talking about this 80 to 83, 4, 5. I mean, this area, like the, the so-called Bay Area in, in California, and then, yeah, basically more or less all of California, was kind of the, how do you say, like it was the the the, the home ground of everything that was happening in rock music and then in metal. 
So I guess, I mean, what bands were coming up around this time? And, and, and you know, were, the, were you influenced by that? Like, you know, I know Metallica was there and, and, and all the bands like that. Yeah, there was, uh, I mean, just in my high school, uh, it was Alex Golnick from Testament, mm. uh, Larry Lalonde from um, Primus, um, Kevin Cadigan is a third eye blind, uh, a few years older than me was... Um, uh, Phil Kettner from Exodus. Um, uh, I'm not sure. If Kirk, I think Kirk Hammett went to the, the high school in another city, but he was in this, uh, the in same the, scene. The, oh. um, and then we had a lot of the, the, the hip-hop guys, Digital Underground, uh, tons of jazz guys. Uh, there was um, Josh Shedroff, who I think his professional name is uh, uh, Joshua Redman. Mm. Uh, fantastic musician. And then a lot of like the the uh, uh, Tim Armstrong from Rancid and mm -hmm. Operation Ivy, he was one grade um, below me, and so it was just it was everywhere. But why? Why in this area? What? What? Was there any? I don't know if it was any one source, but there were certain factors. Like in public school in Berkeley, Berkeley was just liberal, feminist experiment, mm. and. I didn't know it at the time because I had nothing to compare it to. But, I mean, I think it was first grade. They came and they said, okay, uh, you have your choice of a free instrument and free lessons uh, until you graduate 12th grade. What would you like to play? And you could choose saxophone or trumpet or drums and literally anything. And mm -hmm. you would go into band and the uh, uh, band uh, and music courses, award-winning bands came out of uh, – out of these schools. And although I, I didn't choose uh, that path because I was already taking piano mm -hmm. lessons, mm -hmm. a lot of the people that did, it just, there was just music everywhere. And it wasn't, you know, some shitty, you know, recorder class. It was mm -hmm. a dude learning how to play tenor saxophone every day mm -hmm. in class as part of his curriculum. Mm -hmm. And that really permeated the whole culture. Uh. And, uh, I mean, we had, we had Afro-Cuban dance. You could learn Swahili. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was that kind of school. And you didn't pick up the Egypt there, Arabic. You could learn Arabic, too, yeah. if you wanted. I didn't. <laughs> uh, because it's actually interesting what you're saying. It made me think back in Iceland, where I'm from, that then they they did this. They they actually they they combined uh, music teaching with regular school. So... So it's in one place, you know, like the music teacher comes to the school and the classes are there. And then I think we have a very high ratio per capita of, you know, people that actually play instruments or create music or whatever they do with this. And I think, yeah, when, when you say it, it makes sense. If you give the chance to kids to, to do something like this, they will take that chance and the outcome will be something like this. And I mean, we're talking about in the Bay Area, we had, you know, we had Slayer, we had Metallica, later Megadeth, uh, Testament, Anthrax. I mean, Anthrax is further south, I think. No, Anthrax was New York, sorry. And uh, and this whole, yeah, Exodus, I mean, there, there was just like a, this whole genre of thrash metal came out of there at that time. And you had the hair metal still there, you know, like the, the Motley Crue's and the Guns N' Roses and all that stuff. Yeah, and later uh, pop punk like Green Day. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just the lessons. It was your peers were fucking great musicians, and you would be at a, whatever, a, a, it, you're nine years old, you're at a sleepover, and 
somebody starts playing a piano and you better have something to contribute because mm-hmm. that's that's what you're doing at the sleepover. Mm-hmm. You're not going to run around town, you know, tipping cattle. Mm-hmm. It was just it, it was just everywhere. I guess there must have been a lot of concerts then. I mean, did you see any of those bands when they were kind of in their early days, you know, like in small lo- locations or bars or something? I mean, how how was that? Yeah, I remember I was with, uh, it was the guys that became the band Sacrilege. Sacrilege didn't get huge, but they were a um, a Berkeley metal band that, that everybody knew. And a uh, guitar player handed me this tape of this band called Metallica and said, hey, you got to check this out. It was their first mm-hmm. release, which was on cassette. And uh, damn, whoa. We I were just out, out of the water, never heard anything like this. Mm-hmm. And it's, hey, they're going to play live. We were 13 at the time. They were playing at this place called Ruthie's Inn, which is this little pub. I would say maximum 50 people could fit in this thing. So we couldn't get in because it was a pub, but there were so many people in there that they were not able to close the door. So mm-hmm. we were able to see Metallica live by standing on our tiptoes out at, at, out in the street. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Dave Mustaine was in the band at the time uh, because I just didn't have any real awareness yeah, of what they uh, It was just a band I was seeing. Um, so there was that. I Then... Uh, Exodus played once on the steps of our school. <laughs> like after school, like, mm-hmm. why are they playing? Like, I don't know. Fuck it. It's free. Here we go. Uh-huh. And then there was another band they were called, oh, what were they called? It was one of the guitar players from Exodus played in another band. Gary, that Gary, also, Gary Holt? No. Um, no, I, I, I'm friends with Gary. I know Gary. But uh, no, it was the other guy. Um, uh, I can't. Oh, I, I, this was this was a long yeah. time ago. I guess I'm forgetting. But but and then you and at this time you're not in a band yourself, right? I mean, you you didn't start right away in a band, right? Actually, in eighth grade, I started a band with uh, Dave Edwardson. Dave Edwardson later went on to form the band Neurosis. Mm. Although I was never in Neurosis, he and I had a, a first little jam band which we called Blackguard, mm. uh, which was I think we had one song that we just played over and over and over again. And then, but uh, when I was 14 or something, I met this guy, uh, Anthony Wells, who was the most weirdest, wildest guy I've ever known. Fantastic person. He used to run around town and he had this classical guitar with him and he would just write songs with lyrics and serenade the ladies and he gave me one of these guitars, and so we both had them. Mm. And I started learning how to write songs. And, and, and not just that, but I had it at school with me. So I didn't just practice when I was at home. I played constantly through the day. Mm. And all of my teachers said, okay, well, you know, just don't play while the lecture's going, but otherwise it's totally fine. Mm. And so as I was getting into the art of songwriting and I was looking to what was available to me as like what I would consider um, 
like something to aspire to. I was not really drawn to heavy metal. I was drawn more to like Motown, Marvin Gaye, and Earth, Wind, and Fire, mm. and uh, R&B music because it had more complicated chord progressions. It had more interesting rhythmic changes, mm. and it had a more interesting bed for vocal melodies. Mm. And so ended up uh, having a collection of songs that, you know, without really having a band to express something like that, or even really having the knowledge of how to arrange something, mm. decided that the best course of action was to, uh, to go to a recording studio and track it with drum machines and learn how to, how to, how to make records. Mm. Uh, I started with just a cassette four track and I had a little drum machine and I would just sit and just experiment and try to get something that didn't sound terrible. And eventually... Uh, by the time I was 15, uh, we ended up uh, booking a recording studio in a city called Palo Alto, which is south of San Francisco. Mm. And as a 15-year-old, walked into this recording studio for the first time and met the guy that would later be the drummer for the band T-Ride that I played in. Mm -hmm. This is the famous producer now, Eric Valentine, who mm. you may know his name. He's, he produced uh, Smash Mouth and Third Eye Blind. Uh, he did one Satriani album. Um, Queens of the Stone Age. So mm. he's, he's uh, you know, his name is etched in history. Now, I met him when I was 15. He was a 16-year-old kid operating a recording studio in the garage <laughs> of uh, the converted garage of his bandmate's parents. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated with their whole scenario and ended up working there at the studio. They asked me to play in the band. We traded... You know, my skills for, I, he was kind of a mentor for me as a recording engineer and producer as well, and ended up playing with those guys for, you know, the next eight years or so. But you, your first live performance, though, was with Joe Satriani, right? Yeah, that was actually an also an interesting story. So this is after uh, I had uh, stopped taking lessons with him. Mm. I was in a band with Eric Valentine and the singer Dan Arley. Band was called T Ride. Mm. T Ride. We did a, uh, a four song demo, which was we produced ourselves, and which was really, really uh, extraordinary. Mm. And then signed with a company called Bill Graham Management. And Bill Graham also managed Satriani. So we all kind of knew each other, and everybody was mm. um, you know, working together in that way. There was. Um, be because this band had been designed in the recording studio and because it was experimental music, we didn't really have opportunities to, to take play it to the life. stage yet. Yeah. Oh. And I got a call one day from Satriani's manager, and he said, yeah, um, Joe's uh, equipment truck was stolen last night, and, you know, because uh, Satriani's band at the time was a trio, it was guitar, bass, and drums, but there were other things in the arrangement like other guitar parts or synthesizer parts or something that were triggered by a sampler. Mm. So the drummer would hit a bar and then a, a, a sampled guitar phrase would play. Mm. Well, that sampler was gone. So they needed somebody to come in and play those parts. Can you do it? Ugh, okay, where, where's the concert? It's at the Cow Palace opening for Steve Miller Band. Mm -hmm. 15,000 people. I was not going to say no, but I was terrified. So I rode my motorcycle out there. 
And the thing is, like, I was aware of, of Saturn's music. Of course, I'd listen to it, but I didn't know how to play any of it. Is that is that stuff from Surfing the Alien then, or, or? yeah, yeah, and uh, Not of This Earth? Uh huh. Both great albums. Yeah, and uh, I ended up. I think it was maybe five songs or something. And he said, basically, you're going to play the clean guitar. Mm. But Satriani had such a, a high opinion of me that it wasn't like a guitar lesson. He just basically said, okay, it goes like this, jin, 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 then stand a major third, jin, 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 and then you pause, eight, and then repeat. Okay, got it. Okay, next song. And there was no playthrough. There was no practice. And... um. <laughs> and I was just in my head thinking, oh, God, please don't fuck this up. <laughs> and so uh, Satriani was opening for Steve Miller. And uh, I was starting the show. The show started with the song um, and, uh, Flying in a Blue Dream. Yeah. So it starts with this yeah. clean guitar. Yeah. So I went to the drummer. I believe it was uh, Jeff Capitelli. And I said... I need you to bang your sticks together. I need a tempo. Mm-hmm. I need to follow somebody because that's how I'm used to playing. I'm used to playing to a track. Yeah. And he went, oh, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. So two, three, four. The fucking lights came on and then the screams. Whew. And it was being broadcast live on the radio. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that at the time. Oh, you're, you're 18. 16. Yeah, eight, uh, 18, I think. 17 what or 18, the fuck? I remember. And it was fine. I mean, we played and uh, I uh, <laughs> assumed like what I considered this. Okay, this is the rock and roll body position. You uh-huh. know, stand with your head high and your legs slightly apart. apart. Yeah. And um, and somehow pulled it off. And and, yeah. and your father was there. You told me that. Yeah, my friend, my friend Tony uh, called my father and said, hey, your boy's going to be playing Cow Palace. My father, you know, what the fuck is a rock concert? He had no idea what that was. He says he drove out there, bought a ticket, and sat, and he said, I wasn't really sure what I was looking at, but I was very proud of you. Uh-huh. He joked. He said, I, I wasn't even sure I was facing in the right direction. But, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, so you're, at this time, when you, you make that first gig with, with no one else than Joe Satriani, of course, uh, then... Um, you're in that band T-Ride, and I, I read a little bit about that band. I've been watching some of the, the or listening to some of the music on YouTube and watching some of the videos. Um, and uh, that album that came out in 92, right, that took six years to make. Yeah, it was a very interesting process. The, um, the As I said, when I first met Eric, he was 16 years old, and mm. the, the, the concept was that they would run this recording studio as a business, recording other bands, at the same time learning how to produce and arrange and record so that those skills could be applied to T-Ride. And uh, so that's what was happening. There was a long period of experimentation. Some of these songs, we had five, six different versions of them. That was fine. That was all part of the exploratory uh, process. Eventually... Mm. Eric got to be a good enough producer that we did this four-song demo. The songwriting was solid enough. We got a management um, a, a contract. We got a record deal with the, with a big company, right? Yeah, Bill Graham was Bill Graham was the the guy that 
brought the Rolling Stones to the United States first mm-hmm. time, or mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was at Woodstock telling Jimi Hendrix that he needs to stop fucking around and play his guitar. He's that guy. Mm-hmm. Very interesting guy. Very interesting story. So, yeah, he was huge. We signed a record deal uh, with Hollywood Records, which was an affiliate of Disney, and they just showered us with cash, mm-hmm. which where most bands would go and hire a, a you know, a name producer and spend this money on recording studio time. Uh, they negotiated that this would be spent to update the recording studio that they already owned and that the, uh, that Eric would produce the album. Mm-hmm. So everybody agreed. Eric's first decision as a producer mm. was, Hey, now that we have this new, uh, mixing desk and these new microphones, we have to re-record all of everything that we've already done. Mm. All of the songs that were already done, we had to start from zero. And, I mean, personally, I thought that was ridiculous, just so that whatever, guitar tone could be slightly better, or whatever better means. Um, But the performances, when we were doing it again, he insisted that that they were exactly as they were before. Mm Mm-hmm which again, I thought was fucking idiotic because it's all about performances. And I mean, the, who, who the fuck cares about the tonality as long as the performance mm-hmm. is good. So it took a long time to do that. Long enough so that we went from the period where Def Leppard was at the top of the charts to a period where heavy metal was sort of dying. Mm-hmm. And I remember... We were, the album was done at this time and we had submitted it and there's this period of time where we're, you know, it hasn't been released yet, uh, organizing tours, doing music videos. And um, somebody gave me a cassette mm. of the first Nirvana album. Mm. Uh, well, the- The, the uh, second one, actually. Yeah, yeah. the second one, yeah. Mm. And uh, I was- It smells like tea. Yes, exactly. Right. And that song... I no, was, never mind, sorry. Never yeah, yeah, mind. yeah. No, no. But that song smells like Teen Spirit. I was walking through Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, mm. and that came on. I was listening to my Walkman and went, oh, shit. There yeah. was something very special about this. Mm. And it was this intangible thing. But you know, when you hear something and you know mm. it's special. Mm. And my first thought was, fuck, this really changes everything. Mm. This guy, he came, play the fucking guitar, and I don't care. I love this. This guy's amazing. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. I took it to them, to Eric and Dan, to t and I said, guys, you have to hear this. And they dismiss it. Oh, this is shitty. It's a shitty recording. He's, he can't sing, whatever. And, um, but the, that, the legacy of that release, it was like a fart in a room. There was nothing that we could do. Mm. to get away from that. The fact that that was changing the music industry so quickly mm. that it even, I think it caught us right before we started doing our music videos, which mm. so that dictated how we were going to dress and how the image was going to be. So mm. we can't do that traditional Rock. heavy metal yeah. bullshit, you know? Mm. Hey, put a flannel shirt on this guy. And mm. suddenly everything is forgivable. But the, the style of music that we were doing was was the antithesis of what Nirvana was. Yeah, because yours is very polished. It's very kind of... You can hear that this, you know, I can hear on the, your music in, from T, right? Qualified musicians, very produced. And then you have Kurt Cobain 
standing out there, hasn't washed his hair for a month, and, yeah. uh, and a sweater from his grandma, yep. and he's getting everyone crazy. And it's so obvious that anybody can see it. Mm. And that we had spent so much like microscopic focus on things like, um, you know, the, the guitar, bass, and drums on this one drum fill have to match and syncopate in such a way, even though it only lasts for about a second and a half, and we spend three or four days getting, getting that, that one right. drum fill yeah. tight. And it would pass like this. And, mm. you know, for what it is, it's, it's done really, really well. But it, it just could not have been a more perfect time for this to not be that. <laughs> but I, I, but, but I, 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 someone, I mean, the reviews on the band, when, when the album came out, people were saying, okay, yeah, this is the new style of metal. This is, I mean, people like this music. I mean, at least the critics, they, they did. I mean, maybe the public was going off in a different direction. But it makes me wonder. I mean, so you spent six years on this album, and then you kind of get caught in the in the I don't know the whirlwind of of, of Nirvana and grunge, which you know had a huge impact on on not just your band but everything that was going on at that time. What if it, that album would have come out three years earlier? Yours, that is. Yeah. Well, this is all about managing uh, your. Um, your business strategy and your expectations. So, mm. for example, the the business strategy of the release of this album was to treat it like like any band that you assumed would would be a big hit. So the strategy was similar to if they were releasing Janet Jackson or the Arrhythmics, mm. uh, and that the the kind of money that goes into doing promotion and 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 touring and um, uh, radio plugging was commensurate with something that they assumed would be a massive hit. Mm. They were betting on you. Yes, yes, mm. absolutely. And the public's response was, was actually really good. We, mm. we, uh, and, and we did quite well when we toured. We had a, you know, great responses. And we, we toured for almost a year straight. I mean, it was, it was a really fantastic thing. But then when we came back to comparing the amount of effort and money to what was actually realistic, mm. we discovered that the band should have gone with a more of an indie kind of a strategy, an indie budget, that we uh, got the most action when we were on tour. We didn't get... Um, we didn't get on radio charts. We didn't uh, get on the Billboard Top 100 because we just didn't have songs like that. Mm. And that should have been obvious uh, to everybody involved. But again, we were coming from this mentality of like Def Leppard and heavy metal is king mm. and we're better than those guys. And now because of six years later, we have better guitar tones. And but, do you, do, but do you think like, um, would it, I mean like, would it have changed everything if it would have happened? You, you know what I mean? Would, do, do you see it as a... The, those six years were four years too long, or, I mean, in hindsight? I mean, the whole strategy... I mean, you can't... Uh, I, I mean, everything was working according to their plan. They just mm -hmm. had the wrong plan. But uh, they didn't know uh, that. They didn't realize that until after the album was released and after the first tour was over. So that's probably a year and a half or more after 
Down was released when we started into the second album and then started reassessing the business strategy and where money was going to get spent and who we were going to work with. Mm. And at the same time, they were, uh, you know, they were reshuffling people at the record company who also had that, that exact same perspective. Mm. So when we started into the second album, because we had a second album in our contract, it was the A&R guy who signed Allison Chains. I don't remember his name, but I remember he was like, he was like 40 centimeters tall. <laughs> but he had an attitude <laughs> like he was king of all gods. He was such a cunt. He was this, this entitled little rich white kid bitch who just got lucky because he signed... Mm. Allison Chains moved over to Hollywood Records and came, sat on the recording studio couch and said, all right, play me this fucking new record. And before we could play him anything, he said, I just want to tell you, like, I never liked your band. I wouldn't have signed you. I don't know why anybody would waste any time on your fucking music. This was our A&R guy. This was yeah. our direct contact in the record company. So let's say that was not a great start mm -hmm. to the meeting. And... Um, <laughs> and so, okay, so what became painfully clear, to me at least, was that there's nothing you're going to do is going to please this guy. Mm. So we should go in a direction more weird and artsy. We should, um, we should capitalize on the, the fans that we already have who've already illustrated that they like this weird, complicated music. Mm. Don't try to write pop music now because mm. we wouldn't get the support for that. Let's continue on like an indie band with an indie strategy. Let's stay out on tour. I love touring. Mm. And then let's just build it one album at a time like Metallica did. Mm. Well, the uh, that strategy didn't jive with uh, the other guys in the band. Eric hated touring. Dan hated touring. Mm. Eric wanted to be a famous record producer. Um, so that strategy was was dumped fairly quickly. Mm. And then at the same time, it was like the, the passion and the energy to finish this album was also dumped. Mm. It's very hard to get everybody in the studio at the same time. And it never it never been published, right? It, illegally, it's on uh, it's, it's on, on YouTube. On I found, YouTube, I found, yeah. I found it there. But there's, there's tracks that, that I haven't even heard finished. Like uh -huh. I went in and did my... Uh, parts, but the uh, the process finished before mm. I even heard those. So I don't know. Maybe we'll hear them someday. But you you um, um, you said said in some interview that I read that uh, that there was a lot of kind of spinal tap moments around, like how how your music videos were being shown on some stock exchange TV channels <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning and and. Uh, you know, and and uh, and some of the people that you were having to talk to were were explaining you not talking about music. They were telling you how to castrate pigs. Um, well, this is uh, the the brilliance of the movie Spinal Tap. Mm. If you haven't seen that movie, you should go see it. It's, yeah, it's, it's brilliant from nineteen eighty one, I think, yeah, or something. It's great. the The reason that this movie is so funny is because it is true that it it's true from the situations. That the characters, like um, uh, their A and R girl, uh, what was her name? Bobby. F Hiya, it's Bobby Fleck. 
Mm. Nice to meet you. That character. That we we knew that exact person mm. in our record company. We'd say, Oh my God, that's Rachel. Holy mm-hmm. shit. Everything about that movie for us was autobiographical, including opening the opening act for a puppet show. Mm. I'll tell you the story. We had just finished one leg of the Joe Satriani tour in the United States. Mm. Our last show was in um, uh, Florida, and we had a, a showcase concert in Hollywood, I think, five days later. So we had gone with a new booking agency, and they said, well, you got to drive back to Hollywood anyway, so why don't we book some shows for you on the way? Cool. So one of the shows we played was at a, a library... <laughs> and we were literally on the marquee. It said puppet show and T-Ride. <laughs> and we got up on stage, fucking heavy metal band. And there were tables and people reading books in front of us. And okay, fuck it. Two, three, we start playing. And the the screen that they used to to you know to show children's cartoons just went <laughs> down in front of the stage covering us except for our feet. <laughs> and we're thinking, okay, that's an obvious mistake. Somebody will solve that soon. But they didn't. It stayed down for the whole show. And <laughs> and what are you going to do? You're just like, okay, fucking, I'm professional. This is, I don't Gotta know. do it. Yeah. And then the show after that uh, was in uh, San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo. Yeah, and I've been there, actually. Yeah. It's a I uni- saw Berlin, the band Berlin, play live in, in that city. Yeah, take, take your breath like away this. from yep. the, the, the Tom Cruise uh, top, top Actually, gun. I, I played a show with Berlin once uh-huh. in uh, Los Angeles. Lovely people. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, so uh, we were scheduled to play as at a uh, uh, university club in summer. Now, San Luis Obispo is a university town, so mm. in the summer it's there's empty. Nobody there's there. nobody yeah. there. Yeah. So previously, like for example, when we're when we were on tour with Satriani, I would ha- usually have a beer before I went on stage. It's nice to kind of calm your nerves. It actually makes it easier to sing. Mm-hmm. And eventually that one beer would sometimes turn to two. And um, the singer and I, Dan, would, would joke and say, wow, I wonder how many beers we could drink and still play a show. Mm-hmm. But we weren't going to really experiment. We weren't going to, to test that when we were out on tour with Satriani. But we got to this uh, this club in San Luis Obispo, and it was so small that they needed to bring out this little wooden plank extension for the stage just so that we could fit all of our gear on the stage. Mm-hmm. And with that extension, I could touch the back wall of the club. Standing on stage, I could touch the back wall. It was that small. Mm. So even if there was anybody there, it would be just enough for a single file line of people. Mm. So we said, all right, you know what that means? This is the day. This is the day that we're going to discover how drunk we can get and still play a show. Like you have to, uh, you can't play in the middle of the street until you see the far corner, until mm-hmm. you know where it is, mm-hmm. right? So we explained this to the bartender and he was more than happy to oblige. Uh, and let's say that it was... Uh, <laughs> Well, we, we learned exactly how drunk we could play because uh, we went far beyond that point. Uh-huh. <laughs> Started playing the show. And now this is not easy music to play. Uh-huh. So you really you know have to be on top of it. 
And the first song, I was like, fuck, uh-oh, okay. This is actually really difficult. It's not fun. I walked forward for my first vocal, which so I stepped on that, that new stage extension, mm-hmm. which was not exactly Stable, level against yeah, the ground. Yeah. So when I stepped on it, it shifted back, and the microphone, like a rocket, pow, and hit me right in the face. Knocked me off the back of the stage, feet up in the air. That's the first 45 seconds of, of the show. And I don't remember the rest of it. <laughs> but there was not a lot of people there, I guess. So there was nobody there. It was yeah, just no, us in no the bartender. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that was the that was this, this spinal tap uh, mm. uh, reality of mm. what it was like. But what is it that, like, if you look at, like, this band, I mean, you get a record contract, you... Enough money to spend six years on making an album. You tour for a year. Um, you get some promotions, and I mean, yeah, maybe they might have been on the wrong TV stations at the wrong hour. But um, I mean, yeah, like you say, they they bet it on you, and and it makes me think because I mean, you were all qualified musicians. Uh, it was definitely not just a regular. You, if when I listen to that music, I would like, okay, I, I have no fucking clue who these guys copied, if they copied anyone. It was original, it was yours. And I'm thinking, okay, so well, why didn't it become big? I mean, like, apart from, or maybe it's more like a generic question, you know, what sets us apart a band that becomes successful and a band that doesn't, but the music-wise, they might be both great, you know? Is, is, there, is there anything when you look back or if you look at the industry in general and you can say, okay, so yeah, this is why this worked and this is why this failed? It's an interesting question and it, it's, um, it's a deep question because a lot of um, the, 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 how would you say, like the, the mistake or the, the folly of the music industry is to try to quantify art in a way that you can sell it And in that way, you have to treat it like it's any other product, like breakfast cereal. Okay, well, who is it for? What is the brand? How do we, um, how do we squeeze this artistic product into the mold that we already know how to sell as, as as a business? Mm. And that T ride was very, very difficult to to do that with. Like, who is this for? Mm. Um, And at the same time, it was you know the audience was very it was it was it was impossible to quantify we couldn't say well okay it's specifically for this demographic this kind of uh uh this aged male um that lives in this region we found that we had fans from all over the world and they were all different and it was all it was in, incredibly difficult to quantify them mm. and so i i think that the music that really transcends all that the music that really sticks in the human psyche is the music that is successful despite their best efforts. Mm-hmm. Like they throw it out into the world and they try to market it. Basically the song is so good that they were incapable of fucking it up. Mm-hmm. You can't say that, for example, the law of su- supply and demand does not work with music, no. but they will treat it that way. They yeah. will have their business strategies will, Mm-hmm. do that so okay you're not going to sell more records this way but as long as you don't fuck it up then great yeah, yeah. it's kind of protecting the the current situation is a low risk approach 
So, uh, and it's interesting when you say this, that they're actually trying to take something that is very how do you say, diverse or different, and they're trying to wrap it into something and sell it to a target group. Yeah, and you'll have a song that goes viral that just breaks out of nowhere. Mm. And everybody, it defies all of the rules, all of the the, the, the current trends and the, the, the uh, assumed um, knowledge that when in reality people don't really care about mm. that. Mm. It, it's like, yeah. either like the song or they don't. Yeah. Like, you know that song by CeeLo, uh, Fuck You. Da, 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 da. Mm. Like, that would never, ever pass the the uh the, well, the, the filters, record yeah. company filter they say you can't say fuck you people don't like that like well apparently they do apparently it was a mm. huge fucking hit mm. despite your best efforts to fucking ruin it mm. now take something like i don't know like warrant or poison yeah great bands yeah the songs that they had that they wrote that were hits it could have been just a kid with an acoustic guitar singing that exact song, and mm -hmm. it would have been just as big as a hit. Yeah, because it's a well-written song. Yeah, they had to package it with the lipstick and the the spandex leopard print mm -hmm. pants and the big hair and the fucking pyrotechnic show because mm -hmm. that was considered uh, to be um, proper branding at the time. Mm -hmm but totally unnecessary mm. and may have actually hindered them later on in their careers. Yeah. They more became a joke because I mean, for example, poison, they have, you, yeah, you can't really say publicly, oh, I'm a poison fan now because that's kind of like, because of what you said, you know, like the, the, the dress and the makeup and all the hair and the, and the blow drying and all the stuff that they did. But actually, a lot of their songs are great. Yeah, he's a good and songwriter. They were gr and great musicians, you know, and good, you know, played their instruments well and all that. But yeah. yeah, the image that was created around it kind of became so silly that nobody would want to admit that this kid is theirs, you know, like it's a... Uh, exactly. And at the same time, later on, when they just wanted to tour as a band, there's just a dude, he's wearing blue jeans, mm. and you go, that's the dude from Poison. Oh, he's such a poser. He's trying to follow the fashion, and he's following, following trends because he, mm. like, the dude can't win now. Mm. He's like, I'm just being myself, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm getting shit on yeah, yeah. because, yeah, I had a fucking... Uh, Spandex yeah. time. But... Uh, um. It's interesting. So you basically what you're saying is that the music that is successful is that what that sur survives the the mechanism of the industry. Yeah, that's in, in my experience. There's mm. never been a here's an example. There's a song by Prince. It was mm. off his first album. I feel for you. I think I love you. Right. Mm. Great song. So whatever. It was nothing until it was re-recorded many years later by Shaka Khan. Mm. And that's when that song became a hit. Mm. Why wasn't it a hit the first time? Mm. Well, it's not because it wasn't a great song. Mm. Was it something about the uh, the human psyche that somehow fundamentally changed in three years? No, no. it was the record company fucked it up. Mm. That's the only possible solution. Mm -hmm. um, so... You spent this year on the road. It's it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I guess. I mean, like it. It must have been a lot of fun. I mean, you're young at that time, and and I, I mean, if I, I didn't have very kind of 
ambitious dreams as a 17 year old. I just wanted to have enough money to buy moonshine, pizza, and take a taxi home, hopefully with a girl every once in a while. And then that that then you're touring with a band for a year. You're standing on stage playing for thousands of people, and uh, you're you know I guess yeah you're touring with all the bands, so you meet the big rock stars and stuff like this. How how did you handle this? We were actually really well behaved. We didn't have any extraordinarily crazy uh, evenings. Not any more than I would have now. Mm. Um, we never disrespected anybody. We never never got into into drugs. Never broke television sets or mm. trashed hotel rooms. It was like like Eric didn't drink. Dan and I would have a couple of beers. Mm. I mean, they were like my best friends. And then my my other best friend Anthony was uh, my guitar tech. Um, had great respect for the, the the people in the management and the crew. And so you know, our days were like play the set, have a couple beers, meet some people, go back, mm-hmm. go to sleep, and then drive. No, no party. I mean, I mean, yeah, we would party, but not any more than I would do now. Like go mm-hmm. to the pub, hang out with mm-hmm. some people. And there's quite a few people that I met uh, on those tours that I'm still friends with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not like these the stories that I'm hearing about Marilyn Manson duct taping women to the ceiling. And we just, it just wasn't part of our thing. We just, it just never even really occurred to us. Mm. There was one band that we were opening for. They were called uh, Asphalt Ballet. Mm. Uh, also a good band. And there was one night that we were in their hotel room and the drummer thought he was going to follow through with these Brockstar stereotypes and broke the window out of the hotel and threw, tore the TV, which was bolted down to the dresser. He tore it off the dresser and threw it out the window and, and just tore up the whole hotel room. And we were just sitting there <laughs> trying to figure out, like, at what point does this get fun? This is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And how much is that going to cost you? Yeah. And was that worth this little bit of performance art that nobody will ever see? And what, you think, is this like your Brockstar initiation? Like, why are you doing this? What is this yeah, for? Uh, so we were we were extremely well behaved, well, and nice. and that was fine. We had, didn't do anything stupid. We didn't hurt anybody, and we're, there's no danger of some fucking videotape showing up with us doing dumb stuff. There, uh-huh. there it is. <laughs> There's a lot of, lot of you as a musician and, and your band invested in, in a project like this and, and I guess anyone that, that has a chance of, of doing this, you know, working in a professional studio, having a budget, having money, going on tour, kind of getting the smell of this. It must be a little bit, I would say, demotivating to, I mean, I, mean, I think that doesn't even cap- captivate it somehow. I mean, it must must have been kind of a crash in a way that that it ends, you know, that, that it, it's, it's not going to continue. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, investing everything from the age of 15 years old to this one project, uh, you play into it and you, you assume that you're going to be successful. That's yeah, because you can't really have any other mindset. Yeah. And so that means, uh, you know, no university, mm. uh, no actual job skills. And in a worst case scenario, you think, well, at least I have connections in the music industry. At least I have, you know, some no notoriety. Mm. But then in that worst case scenario, nobody ever thought that your musical style would die like disco did. Mm -hmm. And it was actually really kind of intense, you know, at the end of the, um, us trying to record the second album and then the record company calling and saying, yeah, no, no, thanks. There was some, some effort to, you know, to kind of, hold on to it and find a different incarnation of it that could work. But then there were arguments in the band and, you know, and it, which was, didn't, <clears throat> didn't really involve. A little bit of water for Jeff here. Just a brief moment. Didn't, didn't really inv uh, involve me specifically. Mm. The, the other guys were uh, doing the business, but I came to this point where I realized, Oh shit. I mean, how am I going to, myself mm -hmm. which was actually really terrifying um because i mean there's it's not like you're going to get unemployment insurance from from being a, in a metal band yeah it's a completely speculative entrepreneurial business kind of thing and if the money's out then you're out so what the fuck are you going to do mm. so while all of this was happening i said okay well i've learned enough uh about uh, the art and the business that it would make sense for me to start a recording studio, uh, writing songs, producing other artists, and uh, built a little recording studio in my uh, tiny room in San Francisco. Mm. I shared a flat with, I think it was like nine people and seven dogs or something. It was, it was a really, really crazy place, but it was tiny and I could afford it. Mm. And I was able, I, I, I actually got two artists signed to that same management label that I was working with. So we were doing good work. Mm. Um, I was broke as fuck, but, you know, I, I was able to get some momentum. I was able to, to, to uh, uh, utilize the efforts of the, the past few years and, you know, kind of continue that into the future. But the problem with that, that was, that was San Francisco. I'm going to say maybe 1993 or four or something. Mm. And this was right when the methamphetamine addict, uh, the, the wave came through San Francisco, mm. uh, which was, um, I mean, there must be something written about it. I was in the middle of it, but didn't <laughs> know how other people perceived it. But what I saw was the roommates that I had going down one at a time becoming these fucking tweakers. Mm. And there was one guy in particular who's this British cocksucker named Mark. Uh, what was his name? Mark. I'm going to say his name out loud because fuck that guy. If I can remember his name. I remember his little fucking pasty box head. But mm. basically this little cunt... I mean, he was a construction guy, alcoholic, 
Meth head. Yeah, meth head. And one day he was, uh, uh, because he did construction, he had like lots of oily rags and paint thinners in the uh, in the apartment. And he also had a, a, a vast candle and long billowy curtain collection, which on a windy San Francisco evening, all of those things combined and ignited and the apartment literally exploded. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was asleep. It was about one in the morning, and I felt the ground rising up underneath, and then the screams and the dogs barking, "Get the fuck out! Get the fuck out!" And I got out and in on a cold, misty November evening with one guitar and watched the whole fucking thing burn to the ground. Burn to the ground. I had no shoes, no socks, no shirt and a guitar, and um, Red Cross came, and they were fantastic. I didn't even know they did that kind of thing. Uh, but they, you know, tried to help as much as possible. And then the next few days were, I mean, just sleepless, trying to, to, to get whatever was left of my recording studio gear out. Uh, everything was either burned or it was covered with this like chemical water that the the fire department use uh half of it was melted and i didn't have anywhere to go uh my father lent me his car and i was able to store it in a garage somewhere and then i was homeless and uh for that's not fun (laughs) no it's a pretty but jeff what you're describing is a pretty steep hill to roll down you know like you you're kind of a on stage playing for you know people and and in a band and then yeah your whole shit burns down and you're homeless yeah and you know the 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 way that people i knew responded to that was really incredible the like the 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 guys in t-ride their attitude was ooh well, fuck him he that's what he gets for living in san francisco because they hated that city for some reason i don't know why mm-hmm my father, who was, who was a wonderful guy, said, hey, you know, I mean, I can help you a little bit, but this is life. You know, you can't move back in with me. And I didn't want to. I, you know, I mm. wanted to move on on my own. I didn't have any relationship with my uh, mother at that time. Mm. And so I had this task of not only, okay, support myself, but also get all of the gear working again and then continue working with these artists that, you know, I had these, these big business guys that had these expectations. Mm. And that was a a really fucking trying, I want to say six months, but it's all such a blur right now. I was couch surfing. I had uh, some gear at different people's houses and I would, I'd have soldering irons and just, you know, try to, go in and replace whatever was burnt out or broken mm. um, and sort of started to get, you know, I was doing odd jobs. I was doing construction. And then there was this one moment, which was one of the most humbling or humiliating moments of my life uh, where I was just desperate. I was broke. And I said, you know what? You just, you got to go just swallow your pride and go get a job at a at guitar center. Mm. This is the same guitar center that I uh, bought that first guitar. Mm -hmm. And I walked in there and uh, 
as I walked in, there was this big group of people that rushed up to me because I was on the cover of a guitar magazine that month. Wow. And they wanted autographs. And they're, oh my God, we love your album. Could you please autograph this for me? I was in there to ask for a job. And wait, this, what the fuck? I mean, the guy on the cover of the magazine is homeless and, and coming into us. You would never, I mean, when you see a magazine cover, this is never what you would imagine, right? Yeah. And I, I, you know, I put on the, the, the smile and I, I, was, I was humiliated. I couldn't ask for a job. I could not bring myself to say. And so I walked out of there and, um, and I don't know, somehow it, it worked out. Um, and uh, eventually, and I, I'm still not really quite sure how this happened, somehow, because this just happens in the United States, they'll mail you a credit card. Mm. Like, here's a credit card, you have $5,000. Mm -hmm. And like, wow, okay, well, okay, I guess I can get a, a place now at least. Mm. And my mother said, my mother is a real estate agent, And she said, well, you know, they have these low interest, um, low down payment loan things right now. Mm. And it, with this amount of money, you could get another loan mm. to um, put a down payment on a house and actually buy a house. What do you think? Okay, fuck it. Fucking like make this happen. Mm. So there was, it, I ended up buying a, it was a jazz club that had a fire. Mm. And so it was really, really cheap, and it was in a terrible neighborhood. Nobody wanted it. I ended up buying the fucking thing. And um, I had one month to, um, because what, what happened is, okay, so I got like a proper bank loan, mm. but then I had a second loan, which was being carried by the old owner. So I had two loans plus the credit card loan. And... Uh, the only way I was going to be able to handle the, uh, all of that was by, by somehow increasing the value of the place enough so that I could refinance, have it reappraised. Yeah. So yeah. I said, okay, first thing I have to do is fix the fire damage. Mm. So I started doing that. But at the same time, I had to fix all the recording studio stuff. And at the same time, I had to work with all the artists that I was working with. And at the same time, had to operate as a business to pay my first fucking mortgage. Mm. So what did I do? Meth. <laughs> yeah. How else are you going to stay up? You stay awake. I was like, okay. Because <laughs> like it fucked, it ruined San Francisco, but no, I can totally handle this shit. Uh -huh. So I fucking, I would stay up for 48 hours at a time, painting and doing construction and then recording this guy in the morning and then working on this guy in the evening and then, I did that for like a month and I actually fucking did it. Uh-huh. I just saved by meth. Yeah. And that was it was hard to quit, but oh God, that stuff is evil. But yeah, so it's you're crushed by meth because of that idiot that you lived <laughs> with, and then that's the stuff that gets you out of trouble. Yeah. And then but I mean it was uh it was such a intensely stressful time. Mm. I don't know. I mean, looking back on it now, maybe I would have taken it a, a different path. But, you know, when you don't have that many options, you even if it's an extreme thing, mm. you can say, okay, fuck it. I've yeah, already I lost everything, right? Yeah. So 
I, I managed to get on my feet and, um, and sober and then ran this place as a business. But I mean, it was in a terrible neighborhood. I was burglarized constantly. Mm. Everything I own, cars stolen, motorcycles stolen, broken in, I think seven or eight, nine times, something like that. Mm. Even while I was there, there were people fucking trying to kick the door in and just hated it. No social life. And um, eventually, you know, the, um, the artists that I was working with that were signed, that were, there were some personality problems, which happens. And then ended up being just a recording studio owner for many, many years, just living in Oakland, mm. uh, which certainly was not my dream, but it was like, well, fuck it, at least it's a job. Yeah, and you're involved in the industry somehow. I mean, like, you, you, you've always been, I mean, music since you're three. I mean, like, piano, um, yeah. better or worse, but... Um, yeah, but I mean, making, making, like, life choices under duress is always... I mean, if you end up in an acceptable place, great. But this mm. was um, certainly not how I would have planned it. You know, no, but in some way you take like a sidestep on your, let's say your your personal music career. I mean, you, I, you know, I know that you've always been playing and composing music and recording music for yourself. But I guess at this time, maybe this was for the best because I, when Nirvana came and the whole grunge thing, it, it's as we mentioned a little bit earlier. I mean, it's a game changer. It's just a lead guitarist like you that is uh, technically gifted and, and able to play fast and solos and stuff, there was just no demand. Well, what you know, I found out yesterday there was a demand. There, mm. there was just never an artificially um, uh, propped up a business around it. Mm. So, like, you would see all of the grunge bands that were being featured in magazines and thinking, like, oh, well, that's just what people are buying these days. Mm. But people like Satriani and Steve Vai and Testament and Slayer, they weren't, they weren't suffering. They were no, but some of those bands. I mean, not, maybe not necessarily those, at least that you mentioned. But I mean, I, I, I remember, I, I think I told you about it that you know Ronnie James Dio from Black Sabbath. He, 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 he made an album trying to be more grunge, you know, you know, like, and and I, and you could see this. There were there were there was a lot of big bands and big musicians that, that were trying to kind of chase this direction somehow and most of them failed miserably yeah I, I saw a lot of that as well running a recording studio I would have bands coming in all the time mm. guys that I knew like you know the guys from uh, from uh, Exodus mm. came in with this new band and this new look and this uh, you know new vibe and the new lyrical concept and mm. and trying to chase that fashion which always seemed so contrived to me i never did that i never tried to chase fashion mm. and but it it never really occurred to me i was always taught that whatever pop music was with that it somehow tapped into a, a vein of uh popular culture somehow resonates with the mm. general public mm. but it doesn't necessarily it doesn't have like what what you perceive as pop music is uh, really just an elaborate marketing campaign but it doesn't mean that uh, yeah. people don't still listen the, and the, seek yeah. out what i discovered eventually was that heavy metal was alive and well mm. but without the constraints of 
uh, of big business trying to dictate how they would look and how mm-hmm. they would write songs, that they were liberated and that they just said, okay, well, I'm just going to make music that's good for me. Mm. And then went along that path, and the people that liked heavy metal still went to the concerts and the festivals are massive. Yeah, and, I mean, and you see you know, it here in Prague, for example. I mean, the, the heavy metal scene is huge. I mean, like black metal, death metal, whatever, it all comes here. Yeah, and, and it takes something like Brutal Assault, which is a mm. huge metal festival. Mm. You would have no idea something like that exists no. if, if you, you just watched. A, you need to look for it. It's yeah. not pushed at you. And so that's what I discovered. Like these, these people didn't go away. Mm. They just, they just, they were no longer on children's uh, uh, television advertisements. You know, mm. it was, it was, yeah. So, mm. I. But I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, I don't know. I've, I'm, I've been very curious about this because. Uh, uh, I, I do listen to a lot of music, a lot of music podcasts. I read about music, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm. I've always been fascinated by the, by that industry and all, all all of that, and 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 it's kind of. I, I mean, I I remember this time when when Nirvana came and the grunts and all that changed, and and I didn't see it because I wasn't part of the business. It was just oh wow, more great music, and I like you said, I remember exactly where I was at a nightclub in Iceland when I heard that song first, Smells Like Timpid, and I went straight to the DJ and said, what is this, give me that, you know? And, but what I've realized later on is that that, that this was such a big change. It was like, yeah, I, I, just one fucking song or one band, one album just changed the game. And I'm, I often thought about it, like, where did that come from? Why, why did we go from... More like a polished, yeah, guitar solos, um, you know, glossy clothing and lipsticks and whatever, whatever rock and roll was until that day. Out of what does this come, you know? I mean, they're out of Seattle, they're all on heroin or whatever the fuck it is that they're doing there. But there is something that must have caused this. And I often thought, is it because the end of the Cold War? You know, was there some sort of a transition, global transition or a cultural transition that was happening that that moved people into this direction, both the ones that created the music and the ones that were willing to receive it somehow. I don't know. I mean, I'm just shooting blanks here somehow. Well, there was a, a very, uh, there was an honesty and sincerity about uh, Kurt Cobain and the things that he wrote about. But to assume that metal musicians were incapable of that is uh, is a mistake. That they were pushed into becoming cliches of themselves. This, you know, high kick, lipstick wearing, fuzzy headed dude uh, was was being pushed in that direction by the record company because I'm thinking like, oh, well, this is what the kids want. Mm. But to assume that that person was incapable of singing a song about mm. something real, about his, about his addictions or about his fears or something, that's mm. ridiculous. Of course mm. you could. Mm-hmm. But he was never given that opportunity because it wasn't considered marketable. Mm-hmm. And that if he was to deliver a song, hey, this is about, you know, my my grandfather's death, they'd say, oh, fuck you. We have this other song. It's called Kiss My Lips. <laughs> sing it. Sing it like that with a pucker and sing it into the, you know what I mean? So you, yeah. were, you, were, you were, you had talented musicians back then or mm-hmm. a ton of talented musicians. Uh, but they were never given a chance to go in that direction. Now, mm. in uh, 
like when I was talking about when I was in high school, when mm. I would sit with these other great musicians mm. and be jamming with them, it was never about, uh, oh, well, this guy's got something new to offer, mm. so I'm just going to leave. You would say, wow, this guy's, an, you know, he, his chord changes are so interesting. I have to learn how is that going to change how I express my music? And mm. there's no reason to assume that, you know, uh, uh, Kip Winger couldn't have have uh, evolved into the, the as music fashion had changed. Mm. Mm. I'm sure he's got great stories to tell as a songwriter. Mm. But he was never given that chance. And so the, 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 the Inti part of Nirvana, maybe that's the thing, that Nirvana kind of came out of nowhere, and they created their stuff actually before they became big, well, in some way. Some, some dude came around and he, he, had, he spoke a word like, like Jesus. Mm. He said something and everybody went, oh, yeah, I like that. Let's follow this guy. Mm. And everybody else before that was, was speaking um, propaganda from the emperor. Yeah, yeah. And just a re, re a replica of what had been said earlier, and and the uh, and the industry wanted you to say. Yeah, but there was the the, uh, the as soon as the industry found value in this simple Kurt Cobain Jesus, mm. then it was then it was ruined in a way. Yeah, they they started well. First, they started finding replicas. Mm. And then they beat it to fucking death. Mm. And all the other guys, you know, fucking Def Leppard sold 12 million records. Yeah. But and they, I, saw, I saw them here two years ago, and they were fucking great. Great band, of course. Yeah, amazing Why, band. You like, and, 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 but to imagine that you have a band that's 12 million records, and now they can't get their calls answered. Mm. I mean, what the fuck kind of industry does that? Yeah. And... But that uh, talking about that, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I know that you you had a music career after all of this, and and you kind of went back into music. I mean, you you've had more bands, and you've toured with musicians like Duran Duran, Queens of the Stone Age, and and so on. But if we just talk a little bit about the music industry, because in some way, you know, as an outsider from this, I'm and and the state of it today, you know, like what what I, the perception that I think a lot of people have is that. The internet, YouTube, uh, Spotify, and and this digital access, and both on the let's say publishing or distribution side, or, or getting your music out to the listeners, as well as all the tools. I mean, I, as I told you before we started recording, I mean, I'm a, a middle-aged idiot that has no technical knowledge, and I'm still able here to set up and record and edit a podcast and upload it and do everything. Twenty years ago, this would have been out of the question. Now. Um, the same is with music. You have Pro Tools, you have home studios, you have all the, uh, what's it called, guitar pedals and all the synthesizers and everything, all the sound effects, all of it is in the computer. I mean, I could probably create an album just with my Mac, nothing else. And so we're kind of, the impression that this gives is that, oh, it's an open field, everybody, it's a f fair playing ground, everybody has a chance. Is it like that? That's a, it's a deep question. Yeah, I mean, technologically speaking, it's a great time to be a musician. Um, the, the thing about 
music industry, say in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, is we had we had gatekeepers. Mm. We had people that were quality control. Bill Graham, for example, as I mentioned earlier, was one of these people. Uh, Clive Davis, uh, who discovered uh, a lot of the artists that we know today. Uh, Quincy Jones. Mm. Um, these were talented, intelligent, uh, hardworking uh, businessmen that were able to uh, were able to make great music, and then and then parlay that into a business. Mm. But as the uh, decades wore on and the um, uh, the industry became more of a, a parody of itself. And then they they realized that, well, you know, quality isn't really that important. I mean, we can just release 20 bands and maybe one of them will stick. And we don't have to have a, a, a you know, a great album. We just need one great song and the rest can be filler. And so the, 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 the business fumbled and uh, we all suffered be, because of it. Now that anybody can make an album, anybody um, uh, does make an album, and there aren't really that many gatekeepers. At least there aren't gatekeepers for every single genre of music. Mm. Um, that what what's happened is that these other businesses have popped up um, that are making money from the musicians. Mm. So that musicians like, well, I wanted to, um, you know, I've got this song and I want the whole world to hear it. So there are these companies that say, hey. Uh, pay us, we'll put you on these playlists. Pay us, and we'll get you on these TV shows, or you'll have your music being played at the mall. And so, instead of you've the, the musicians have become uh, the they're, they're no longer the, the the product; they become the the, the consumer in a way. And I, and so, in that way, I do kind of miss having a, a kind of a gatekeeper. Now we have these shows like American Idol, like you're gonna fucking sing karaoke. You got to be one out of out of a billion people. But that paradigm used to work, you know, on an individual scale, you know, a, a, a separate from genre to genre. But who is making money today? Because, you know, you don't make money from selling albums anymore. Even if you have a million downloads on, on Spotify or whatever, or, or a million listens, you maybe get a check of $1,000, right? Well, yeah, that's a, it's an interesting thing. You're not going to make money from Spotify, but you can make quite a lot of money from selling your, your, uh, your stuff. For example, if uh, you have a million downloads on Spotify, Spotify. Then you can sell t-shirts. You can sell t-shirts. You can certainly sell concert tickets. Mm. Uh, if you manage your tour well, if you have a good band and you can tolerate each other for long periods of time, you can make a lot of money on tour. Mm. And if you do a proper tour, then you, um, you know, you don't have to share that 
with the record company that's taking close to 90%, mm. that's all yours. So even though you might not get an infusion of cash, you can have a very consistent kind of a lifestyle. Mm. Certainly one that pays for itself and certainly better than, you know, working at the market. Mm. But I mean, what's, what started as a guy who had a funny idea for a song and strummed it away on his acoustic guitar, which then got exploited by, you know, business people all the world. Now you're that business guy. You have to write the song, record it yourself. It has to be good enough so that it mm. can be shared worldwide. But you have to manage your own finances. You have to do your own tours, your own art, your own videos. And so you, every individual has become that media mogul. Mm. And uh, what we've discovered is that anything can be good. Mm. There's that one video, I forget the name of the band, but the video is just this dude. He's like a security guard mm. and he's just dancing. Dancing, yeah, it's Black Keys. Um, smoke, no, I don't remember what. Yeah, it's a Black Keys song. It's, yeah. it's great. He never, actually, that video is one of my favorite videos because he never lifts a leg off the ground. He stands. You know, there is no oxygen between mm -hmm. his heels or any any his sole of a shoe and the floor. He stands in the same, but he dances the whole song. I fucking love that song. And it's it's magnetic. And yeah. and can you imagine trying to get RCA records to, to release that video? Yeah, never. Like, hey, check it out. No, it's really cool. They go, no, 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 no. Put more lipstick on the guy. Fluff his hair out a little bit. We need more naked girls. Get the naked girls in here. And, you know, this video is going to cost you a quarter million dollars now, which then is going to come out of your income. So Lonely Boy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Great Lonely song. Lonely Boy has a great song. Um, but, yeah, so in, in some way, everybody has to know everything now. But, you would then, in, in this current environment, nobody would tolerate six years of producing an album and pay you, pay that cost, right? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, you're, uh, the, the timeline of the creative process isn't really relevant until you release something. Mm. But you, could, you don't have to release a full album now. Whereas back in the 1990s, you know, you were selling on physical media. You had to put it on a CD or a mm. cassette or something. Mm. So it has to be a full album. And you had to fill the space, capacity of that medium. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, it wasn't considered a long play album and it was classified differently, which meant that your revenue was different, which is mm. you just release a single now. Mm. And you know what? If you uh, record it on your iPhone and you do a video of you sitting on the toilet and that's it, if it's good, if it somehow resonates with people, then that's a finished product and that's it. That's mm. done. And mm. that's actually really beautiful. Mm. But in, to, to find out what that thing is that resonates with people, wow, how do you do that? Yeah, it's and that that's also like you're, you're kind of, it's like emailing to God. You, you, you know, it's, there are so many people doing it that you never know if you're going to get through or if you're going to be at the right place at the right time. And I know, I mean, I just know from this, this podcast because I haven't, <laughs> you know, my girlfriend told me she's a marketing person, you know, like by nature and, and branding. And she tell, oh, you have to use the right fonts. And I don't know. I don't, I don't give a shit about this stuff. I just want to record with people that I find interesting and then I'll put it on the air. If people like it, they will listen. If they don't like it, fuck that. It's their problem. They can listen to something else then. And, but I, I, I have learned it that, okay, if I actually want to, 
if I really want to reach something with this, if I would want this to become something else than just me having a hobby, I would have to put in a lot of work, a lot of hours, and I still don't really have any guarantee. So I'm thinking, okay, would it be better if some agency or record company took me on their arms and said, okay, we're going to invest this in your image, this in your brand, we're going to wrap you up in... I would wear Spandex if they wanted me to, you know? And even a lipstick. But And I'm thinking, okay, so if is it actually better now than, like you said, there were gatekeepers. There were some people that let people into the kingdom somehow. Like, they decided, okay, this is good music, this is good stuff, this is what we need, this is what we want. And they really gave it a chance. Instead of now, I have a feeling there is a million people out there doing something half-heartedly, you know? Well, there's also this, um, whatever your idea of what success is, ask mm. yourself, did where did, they, where did you get that from? Did that come from your idea, like when you were growing up, that you would be a superstar and that you'd have millions of fans and you would tour the world? And is that what success is? Mm. Because success, it has changed a lot. Because without a record company, without uh, you having to give up 90% of your revenue and your artistic control to some corporate entity, you can do, first of all, whatever you want. Mm. And that if you're able to break even, I mean, let's think, what what are your recording costs? Nothing. Mm. What does it cost to tour? Well, it's transportation, musicians, mm. a couple of fucking crew. Mm. Very low. So you can break even by... I don't know, like say like sell a, a thousand vinyls. Mm. Your entire process has paid for itself. And that means that you can continue. And if mm. all if all you do is market to those to, to that little audience that, that, that had, actually likes you, yeah. Then you're making a living doing this. Mm. And then this is a niche thing. Like for, for me, I, I you know do rock music. Mm. Uh and, um, you know, I've, I've, there's certain type of demographic, certain people that are rock music fans that are easy to reach. Mm. Um, they go to live concerts, they buy t-shirts. They're a very active crowd, I think, rock, rock. Very much so. And, and if they like one song, they'll buy your whole back catalog. Mm. Uh, they want to know you personally and they're, they're devoted fans. Yep. But let's take like another genre. Like let's say like electronic music, that uh, your let's say you created a beat mm. that is fantastic and people love it, and you're somehow able to go I don't know play festivals or something like that. It's an entirely different business model that I'm not even really aware of. I'm not sure how those people how it works how it works, but. For somebody that does that kind of thing, for you to discover that process and then become an entrepreneur and have a handle on that is, it's not this insurmountable thing. It's entirely mm. possible. Mm. And that you can, at that point, say that your success is not based off of some gatekeeper, but it's based off of your talent and your ability to do the business properly. And that means you're empowered. And mm. for the first fucking time, you're working in for yourself, life. yeah. Yeah, you're in charge. You're not being exploited. Yeah, and maybe you're not going to be working with Madonna next week, but you're you're not working at the petrol station, mm. you know. 
And I mean, and that's what you've done. I mean, since since this, I mean, I know you you had uh, you were in this band with that woman. What was the name of that band again? Sorry. Oh, uh, uh, Snake River yeah, Conspiracy. Yeah, Snake River Con- Conspiracy. And then, and you toured with an another band, this Monster. Yeah, we did a lot of tours. We were up with uh, Monster Magnet, uh, Queens of the Stone Age. Duran uh, Duran. Uh, that was a different band. That was the band Stimulator. Uh, we were out with Filter, um, Farouk Assault. Uh-huh. This was like the year 2000, 2002, or 2003 or something. Mm. That 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 record, it was called uh, Sonic Jihad. It was out on uh, Reprise, uh, Warner Brothers. Um and then all the usual accoutrements, MTV, music videos. We did uh, one music video with the director, Gregory Dark, mm. who did the Britney Spears video. Actually, ex-porn producer, uh-huh. the Dark Brothers. Really interesting guy. I have some stories about him. Nice guy. Mm. Hey, actually, Gregory, if you're, uh, if you're listening, I've been trying to look you up. Uh, uh, reach out. <laughs> we, yeah, this is what wanted. Porn producer. <laughs> um, but, but this... Like because you said somewhere in an interview, you I'm, I'm actually going to quote you here. So you know, after after everything was over, and I think this is you're saying this after T right because I guess that's kind of like a that was the rocket that was the rocket that was going to hit yep. the moon. You know, yep. um, you say adjusting to civilian life was quite uh, difficult for me, and I made a lot of missteps. Burning bridges, drug use, investing my time in looser musical projects, accidents and injuries, a whole lot of shit luck made for a lot that made for a lot of hard lessons learned. I suppose you can't become wise until you fuck up royally once or twice. By that metric, I'm a fucking genius. <laughs> I should put that and make that into a lyric. Yeah, I, I, like, I, li- I like this. Um, <laughs> but I mean, when was it that you kind of, I mean, I, I don't know. The, you get here to Prague. I don't know. When, when is that? When did you move here to Prague? Uh, 2007. And that's when you kind of really take your solo career in a way that it becomes Jeff Tyson band. It becomes you, right? This is yes, yes, absolutely. There was a there was another band uh, in the interim there from two thousand five. No, sorry, two thousand three to two thousand six. Um, I played in this band called Stimulator. Stimulator was my creation with uh, singer Susan Hyatt, and it was like a pop hard rock band. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very, it was, I think it was fine. It was good. That's the band that covered, no, that's not the one with the cover song. Uh, we, we did a cover of, uh, of uh, Magic by Olivia Newton-John. Uh-huh. And the, ba- the band was actually quite successful. This is the band that toured with Duran Duran, uh, with the Go-Go's. Uh, we played some shows with Berlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were on uh, Universal uh, Records. Um, we had... You know, songs licensed in Disney movies. I mean, the, we but we did this independently. We did all this ourselves. Mm-hmm. The music itself was uh, was very. Um, how would you say? Like it was it was very planned. It was it was designed to be a pop, heavy rock mm. project that was designed to feature this girl Susan, mm. and. It was, uh, I, th- I think we did a very good job, but that there were a lot of, um, let's say, personalities that, I'm trying to be diplomatic. No, <laughs> no, don't, you don't have to, the, we, you're, you're, you're drinking your third beer, stop that. <laughs> That's why I gave you the beer. Yeah, Susan was, was um, she's, she's a good friend of mine and I adore her, but she was very abrasive. 
Mm. She was full on woman power and God bless her. But if any man tried to give her advice or to suggest something that might work better in a business capacity that she would burn that bridge. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would, with fucking fireballs. She was, she was, she was very hot headed. Mm. And, uh, you know, we lost a lot of, of uh, business potential from that. And, you know, as I was the, the producer, uh, a co-songwriter, guitar player, I, uh, you know, I, I can obviously sing myself as well. And so when I wanted to break out and go solo, I thought like, why do I, if I'm going to leave this project, I'm going to leave the design stuff as well. I'm not going to try to contrive this. Mm. I'm not going to try to make pop music anymore. Like, why do I need to to try to cater to some asshole in a suit? Mm. And these guys don't even know what the fuck they're doing anyway. And mm. this was right around the time that the the record companies were dying because of file sharing and, the, the, you know, they were... Napster and all that. They were, they were rats on a sinking ship. I remember we had the president of, uh, what was it, Def Jam or uh, what record label was it? I forget. It was one of the major record labels. Mm. Was in my studio, sitting on the floor. He's in a three-piece suit. He's sitting on the floor. Like, I have a couch. You can sit on the couch. But he's sitting on the floor. And he loosened his tie, and he just had his hand in his head. like, oh, is your call? what the fuck am I going to do? What am I going to do? And he was talking about file sharing. And the reason that they couldn't put a control on it is because the, all the major record companies could not agree on a watermark technology. Mm. They have the technology that works to stop the, it. Not a unified standard. But they would refuse to agree on it. Mm. And so rats on a fucking sinking ship, it all went to, straight into the fucking toilet. And uh, and so I thought, okay, I'm certainly not going to chase this fucking dragon. These guys don't know what the fuck they're doing. Mm. So I thought I'm going to go and just dude with an acoustic guitar. Mm. Fuck the United States. You can't tour there. It's too expensive. How the fuck are you going to get a, a a gig if you're not on the radio? So let's go somewhere where it's back in time. Let's go to Central Europe, let's go to Eastern Europe. And so when I first came here, I was just a dude with a guitar. Mm. And But I didn't really know how it worked here. So I started, I had that that album that, uh, that I uh, released in 2006 mm. and uh, had an acoustic tour version of that. And I traveled on the train for three and a half months. I played every street corner and pub and cafe and hotel lobby and and just country after country after city after city for city and and just to see what Europe was like mm. and what there was to offer and I figured like hey, I'm an American guy with a guitar how hard is it going to be to meet people mm. well apparently it was very very easy and I met I have friends all over Europe now mm. and in each city I discovered things that were positive and negative that eventually influenced my. Uh, choice to 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 move and settle in Prague. Prague had a good combination of um, a, a young music scene, um, potential to get on the radio. The audiences are there. The clubs are good. The technology is good. Mm. The musicians are fantastic. Mm. It's a pretty city. It's not too expensive. Safe. 
Yeah. And it reminded me of San Francisco in mm-hmm. the, in the uh, early 1990s. Mm-hmm. It had all of the potential, but it wasn't so full of itself that it knew it had that potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually, when you say this, I, I, I came two years after you, and I, I, that's actually a very good way to describe it. it it's, the potential is there, but people are not snobby about it or, or, or bragging about it. You, you know what I mean? They're not full of themselves. Yeah, exactly. And it, would be, it was just so endearing to me. that to, I'd be playing with this, there was this gypsy father and son, Mm. genius guitar players mm. and i'm just jamming with them at a at a club one day and just going like fucking hell these guys are astounding mm. and i'm you know we're we're playing to to 30 people mm. we didn't organize this we just started playing and people just started coming and showing up and there was there it, it was actually um it was a little pub on uh, Deloha. It didn't last very long. It was called the Soffit Bar. I think it held maybe 25 people. Mm. We had that bar packed to the fucking limit Mm. every day. I would say 50, 60 people squeezing into that little fucking place. No sound system. Uh, And... It wasn't. We didn't even have songs. We would just play whatever. We would play Billy Jean, mm-hmm. by Michael Jackson, but do a gypsy version of it. And then, but people just adored it, and it was it was this incredible experience. And thinking about how impossible that would have been in Hollywood, because mm. Hollywood is too full of themselves. Mm. It's like, oh, hmm, he's a gypsy. I don't know if I can. It doesn't fit my personal brand. <laughs> and. <laughs> And then, uh, you know, other things like I was, uh, I just one day wrote a song and I met this fashion photographer guy at, uh, at a pub and he's like, oh, it's a pretty cool song. Let's do a video. So I called my friend who's a supermodel who just sort of showed up and goes, and he says, well, I don't know, kind of do this, do that, whatever. Edited a video together, went viral. Boom. Mm-hmm. I started getting calls from all over Europe. I said, this is beautiful we want you to headline the the balaton music festival in mm-hmm. hungary like literally mm. <laughs> this is a huge festival it's huge and one of the biggest festivals near oh. it headlining on a saturday night <laughs> and they said what's the name of your band uh, um uh, jeff tyson band <laughs> that's how jeff tyson band was born yeah that's how it and i didn't even have the players and so i i called those gypsy guys and i said hey <laughs> Why do you want to go on gig. tour? <laughs> Got a gig. Got a manager soon after that. And then pretty soon, you know, we were all, we we're everywhere. Magazine mm. covers. And that's what I meant. It had all the potential. All you had to do was reach out to people. Yeah. It was like that thing where you would just have a cassette and you send it to the manager and the manager likes it and mm. just pulls that switch and suddenly, you know, and. But that's the, that's the interesting thing because, I mean, I've talked to, I've had some musicians on, on, on this uh, podcast before. I had Johnny Youngblood and, and Marley Wild Thing and, and uh, Tonya Graves. And what all of them said and what I've seen also is that it's super easy to get stuff done here through, like, friends and, you know, yeah, yeah, I will help you and, you know, we'll make a video and it's not going to cost you a million dollars, you know. It's 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 basically favors and, and uh, yeah, you just take me for dinner one time or something, you know. And that's great. Because and they're good. Yeah. They're talented. Yeah, yeah, but apart from that, 
everyone is talented and they all just want to promote themselves everybody's willing to participate it's it's such a it's such a great thing and it's actually interesting because people here the natives are quite closed in in general but when it comes to these kind of things they're all there you know they're all willing to help and be part of something yeah the Czechs love art it's mm. a big part of their mm. culture Mm. And they they especially love working with other talented people. Mm. If you give them an opportunity, every every instance that that I've had, that everybody shined so brightly, and mm. it's just been really fantastic experience. And I think like, what would that be like in Los Angeles? It would never happen. Yeah, it would be some guy who's like been he was shooting a reality TV show during the day and he's pissed off and angry like why did i go to art school for this shit mm. and then he shows up your video whatever where do i point the camera oh, fuck this mm. you know but um so this over these years i mean you you released three albums that are at least i found three on spotify that i've listened to and i, I know there is more material because you told me before we started recording that some of it was taken down it would be uploaded again but um two of them are I would say, I don't know how to, I, I, I don't want to classify it as something specific. I would just say kind of rock music. But um, um, the latest one, Drinks with Infinity, that came out last year, 2020. Mm -hmm. That's more like a guitar album. I mean, uh, it really shows how good you are or good, great you are as a guitar player. I mean, it, it's, I, I would put this, album in, in a category of, you know, Joe Satriani albums. And this, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. And and then when I was listening to this and I started kind of, you know, investigating you and, and uh, talking to you and so on, then I, 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 I thought about like this, these guitar heroes, they are often lone rangers somehow. They, they, they seem to work best when they are in total control of what they're doing, you know, if Joe Satriani, he has, I mean, he's been in some bands, he's been in this chicken food with uh, Sammy Haker from Van Halen and, and some Mark Anthony or whatever, is, yeah, Mark Anthony, right? Uh, Michael Anthony. Michael Anthony, yeah. sorry, and and uh, the drummer from Chili Peppers. Chili Peppers, yeah. But, and then Steve Y was in Whitesnake, did one album with them, I think, toured with them. Uh, Marty Friedman, Megadeth, one album, some tour, uh, Ingrid Malmsteen, and I, I mean, ob obviously there are good guitar players in bands as well, like, you know, a lot of them, most of them are good, actually, all of them, but those kind of guys that are, everybody knows those names, anyone that knows anything about rock music will know those names. Why are they not in bands? Is it, does a genius not fit in? Um, well, this can be a, there can be a lot of reasons. Like I would say someone like, you know, Betancourt is an amazing player. Mm. He's in a band, extreme. Mm. Um, at the same time, he plays with Brianna. Mm. So what's the difference between those two things? Rihanna is a gig. Mm. Rihanna is a pay by the week mm. kind of a thing. But what does, what does Nuno do when he's not on tour with Rihanna? He's still Nuno. He's still an artist and he's still going to create stuff. And in my, um, 
understanding of, of, for example, like Satriani. Satriani is a, he's a brilliant musician, but he's a businessman, and that mm. his contribution to something like Chicken Foot, he's gaining as much from an association with uh, Sammy Hagar as Sammy Hagar would be getting from Satriani. Mm-hmm. And that uh, any kind of love the public is giving to that band is mm-hmm. going to be commensurate with how much time he's going to to give to it. Mm-hmm. He's got a fan base that he doesn't need Sammy Hager for that. Maybe in Chicken Foot he's going to cross over and find some new fans. Maybe not. Maybe he'll have a hit. Maybe he won't. But in a case like um, uh, Steve Vai or... Ingve Malmsteen. Mm. It's like, yeah, I'll play on your album. I'll be in your video. I'll do the tour. It's a job. But unless I've got a number one hit that's going to eclipse the career that I've already built for myself, there's no like, reason why, to. Why, why yeah. would I devote 100% of my time to it? It's like, mm. I will, if I will play in the band as, as much as is necessary. Mm. And if it's successful, I'll continue. But, mm. you know, this is. What what kind of project is going to eclipse the career that Joe Satriani yeah, has had? Yeah, uh, that's a know. good point, actually. It's a fair point. How is it, Jeff? Like, I mean, <clears throat> if you take soccer, for example, you have Messi and Ronaldo and and uh, and uh, what's his name? That guy in Paris, uh, Neymar, and uh, you know, like these are the, the big guys. And then you know, in the basketball, you got like LeBron and Kobe Bryant, and and, and there's this rivalry. How how is that with the guitar heroes? Like, would 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 Steve Y hang out with Joe Satriani? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I'm they would they would share skills. Basically if you're if you are worried that somebody's gonna steal your thunder, then your thunder isn't, great. isn't thunder. Uh-huh. Your thunder is a little wispy little fart. That your skills have to be uh so immense or so personalized that you can share every last fucking skill that you have and still be unique. Mm. I actually had a, an interesting conversation with Satriani um uh, last year, uh, I went to go see him in Budapest, mm. and so we were backstage, and he was talking. He he said that um, now with the internet, he would he would release an album, mm. and two days later, there's some nine or ten year old South Korean girl that has picked up all who the songs. has played the entire album note for note and uploaded it to YouTube. Yeah. And it, with all of the same vibrato and techniques, yeah. everything is there. Yeah. And he says, like, that your physical skills are, uh, they're a novelty at best and irrelevant. In reality, the only thing that really matters is your ability to write a song that people can connect to. Can mm. you write a song? Apparently, this North, this Korean girl cannot. No, but at she least copy. Yeah. Not yet. Mm. But that Satriani's success does not come from his physical prowess. His, his success came from melodies and chord progressions and rhythms that are unique. And in that way, 
No, nobody can copy that. That's his style. Mm. So he's not afraid of showing it off to others. Oh, yeah. And, and being friends with... Uh, yeah, and much in the same way that, you know, I, I could say I have an idea for a song and show it to you, you still wouldn't be able to steal it. Mm. You you know, and and like with Steve I, he has a, a very different writing style from Satriani, mm. different than Aldi Miola, different from... Uh, Nino Betancourt, each of these guys has this sort of signature thing that they gravitate towards. And even if you could copy them, you couldn't do it as good as they did. And then mm. you'd say, okay, you failed to copy Satriani. Bravo. Thanks. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, when I when I started listening to your music, I mean, I was actually... So this mutual friend that we had is a great... Great girl that that uh, knows a lot about music and a lot about musicians in in Prague. Hi, Alona. Uh, um, and she she told me, ah, there's this great guy that you need to talk to, Jeff Tyson. He's, he's some guitar hero, you know, and you know he's he's been in bands and sex, drugs, and rock and roll and blah blah blah. And I said, okay, cool, you know, and 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 I was like, why would you know, like, how could I get close to that kind of guy? And then when I checked your page, I started looking at the videos, I started looking at the interviews and so on. And I was like, okay, so you're basically in up there in that category. I mean, you you are you're one of those guys. And I, I can see, I mean, you know, I, I found you on front of I don't know, fifteen, sixteen different guitar magazines and stuff like that. And that new album, uh, Drinks with Infinity, is very much as I said earlier, like a guitar album, but it's it's not as it's it's more digestible somehow I felt, but then when I read the lyrics or or the names of the songs, um, they they are very kind of outlandish, <laughs> a lot of them. So what's the inspiration for all this? I mean, where does this come from? Well, this uh, the, uh, the the idea to do an instrumental album was something I've been resisting for. Many years. Uh, Satriani's been just bugging me, dude, just fucking do an instrumental album, a guitar album. But, you know, I'm a vocal-oriented guy, like pop mm -hmm. music. Like I was saying earlier, when I had started learning how to write songs, I was gravitating more towards Motown. <clears throat> mm -hmm. uh, so when I finally went to, to go actually do an instrumental record, it was a very new paradigm for me. Mm -hmm. And actually what happened is I wrote 13 or 14 songs in the traditional... Uh, method that I do and tried to do lead guitar over those and they were just terrible. It just didn't work. Mm. That the this, the technique of writing vocal music for me does not work while writing instrumental stuff. So I had to I scrapped all of it and just started again from zero. And my intention was to reconnect with this guitar um, it, uh, it primally and, and emotionally and that it has to be um like going back to that that first time i heard van halen what was it about that the energy that it wasn't a logical energy it, there was something in there there were some fucking animal mm. hormones in there and i said that in 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 order for for me to uh, to get into that frame of mind, I had to turn off my record producer, my internal editor, my guy that that the the songwriter in me has has to shut the fuck up for a bit. So you basically dialed back thirty years. 
more. I in I, a way. I think what I what I did was I um I started every song as an improvisation. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what I was going to play. I would put up a, a drum beat, turn it up loud, put on the guitar, and then just play. And every song, with, well, maybe one or two exceptions, uh, uh, the, the songs on there started out as improvisations, so much so that there are pieces of every song that include that original improvised take, mm-hmm. where I said, okay, I played this thing, and I go, hey, that's the song. That's mm-hmm. what it's going to be. Mm. But I'm not going to fix it. Mm. Is the guitar out of tune? I don't care. Is mm. it perfectly in beat? I don't care. That that encompasses that energy. Mm. I'm not going to fix it. I'm not going to refine it. I'm going to build the song around it. Mm. And so after that initial improvisation was done, and uh, then approaching it like a producer and saying, okay, well, I can do the arrangement of the other instruments around it so that this part is featured, for example, and then do overdubs, so so after I after I figured out that that was how this album was going to go, the the process actually went fairly quickly. Mm. And um, in the uh, as the as it started to become more apparent, like what it was going to be as an album, and I was thinking about song titles. I actually it's instrumental, so I thought, well, it doesn't really matter what the song titles are; it could be anything. I had been keeping a collection of funny song titles just from hanging out at pubs mm. with my uh, international friends and as people who don't speak English as a, as a first language will sometimes say very funny phrases and I would mm. just take out the phone and write them down and these are <laughs> some of the yeah, like stro- stropper and napalm <laughs> shack monkey love liquid kitty it's cool stuff and 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 uh, uh are you going to make another guitar album, or is this a one-off? I'm progressing in this uh, this direction of primal improvisation for my next album, but I'm going to include vocals on the next one. Mm. It's taken me a, a, a little bit of soul-searching to figure out how to improvise uh, lyrics and, and vocals, because I'm determined that these that I will not sit in the studio doing a vocal track every vocal that is that I've written and performed so far on the on the album that I'm working on has been an improvised one take thing including the lyrics mm-hmm. and that so it's it, quite raw it's extremely raw and then building mm. the the track around it mm. so it's it's really the same artistic mentality as this instrumental album, but I'm just adding my vocal textures in there as well. Mm. And this has been a, a, a big um, psychological challenge f- for me over the years. Again, going back to what we talked about, record company branding and fashion and stuff, and how that has really inflicted and restricted my ability to express myself lyrically and as a singer because I'm always thinking about well, what do people want to hear and how am I going to express what do how am I going to brand myself and all of this stuff that just it, it's it's just been a rock in in my in my shoe of creativity and finally being having done this in, having done this instrumental album and show, proven to myself that I I can abandon that mentality mm. completely mm. and do something good w- without 
really suffering through the process. So now I'm basically just continuing in that vibe, but just adding the vocal elements as well. So, mm. I, and again, the process is, it's happening very quickly. I'm, I'm demoing, I think song number eight now. So it's, it's coming along nicely. Mm. So you, you have, I have those three albums. I have I have them in front of me here. Drinks with Infinity, that's the latest one. Then there is Inominandum. Is that correct? You said Inominandum. Yeah, that's right. What does that mean? Inominandum. Uh, Nominandum was explained to me as being um, the, the island of knowledge has no roads. Uh-huh. Or the island of wisdom has no roads. That's deep. And then the third one that I have here is Slow Mad Descent. That's from 2006-7. That, that's, um, yeah. And, like, so you, you've you basically since 15, you've been a rock star in a way, like, or, you know, like a musician. Yeah, and, that, that lifestyle. Yeah, lifestyle. And, and you know, you've been in, in this industry and you've, out of need, the necessity, you kind of built a side career as an engineer. I mean, like, yeah, so you're both self-sufficient in a way as a musician, but you're also able to, you know, make money on the side of, of, of different things. Um, and and I see, like, because, you know, I, I, I grew up on rock and roll, you know, Kiss and, and Metallica, Iron Maiden, all, all these bands, and then, you know, into into death metal and, and, and so on, and and every year that passes, you know, like I see more and more of my heroes retire. And I don't see a lot of new ones coming in somehow. I, and it, I'm, I'm thinking, and I can see that, for example, Gene Simmons from Kiss, he's been saying it now like for a while. And I don't know, maybe he gets money every time he says it or whatever, or it's a hot take, so it gets him attention. He says rock and roll is that. And yeah, fuck, fuck Gene Simmons and fuck his pseudo wisdom. How about that? Hey, Gene Simmons, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Your time to shut up is long past. Yeah. And okay, for, well, first of all, did, wait, finish what you're saying. No, no, I, no. I'm, I'm just. I mean, and then now we had just. I mean, I know that we we are recording this now here in 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 end of May or yeah, end of May, and and we might be airing this in August or or July or something, and. And there's just this recent thing where, where the bass player of, of, of Megadeth was expelled from the band because of a masturbation video with, uh, as far as what we have heard now, and we're talking about this based on what we know today, with a consenting woman of a legal age. And and he, he's kicked out of the band. And and if you look at all this kind of, yeah, where where things are going kind of, publicly, cancel culture and all these things. I mean, there are phrases around all this and I don't know what is what and what is not, but is it, you know, can can you be like, I don't know, like Van Halen, if we take them as an example, because that's your band. I mean, they, they did breaks in their concert with a drum fill so that the, the, the rest of the band could go and get a blowjob and, and do a line of coke. Can you do that today? Well, I'm sure you can find people to consent to that of course you of course it's human nature people like excess people like to be crazy mm. and that you know rock and roll is first of all rock and roll is not dead rock and roll is a is the manifestation of a certain emotion 
that that emotion, whether it is a desire to break away or to party or to, to be fucking crazy, reckless, or whatever aspect of your personality that, you, that won't come out while you're sitting in the office all day, <laughs> and you you put on your warrior clothes and your leather and your fucking studs. I have a battle vest, you know, with all the patches. Yeah. I put it on when I go on concerts. And you go out at night, and you let that primal aspect of your personality come out. That mm-hmm. is what rock and roll is. Mm-hmm. If you had a bunch of kids on a desert island with no access to pop music uh, uh, or instruments or anything you give them a coconut and a, a and a bone from a an antelope they will make music that expresses that primal aspect and mm-hmm. they will create music that uh, that re- that represents them emotionally mm-hmm. rock and roll has roots from the blues the blues which was which created a uh, from from pain from mm-hmm. from oppression mm-hmm. that the, rock and roll as gene simmons is uh is talking about is is the rock and roll fashion like the guitar tones mm-hmm. that that the style of the rhythm all of that is is fucking irrelevant that's just fashion mm-hmm. that that rock and roll attitude the next generation it might be some girl sitting in a village in Ukraine, mm. in her garage, the only instrument that's available to her is a balalaika or a, a, mm. an old drum machine. Mm. But she's going to take that and with that express the rock and roll that she has inside of her. It may not be texturally what we expect, no. but she's going to be the next generation of, the, the, of this genre. And it mm. will... I mean, that's what rock and roll is. It has evolved from these certain roots. It's gone through these different changes from Black Sabbath to mm, Led Zeppelin mm, to mm. hair metal. And now it's branched off in all these different uh, things. With that emotion, that this Gene Simmons cunt thinks so, okay, well, nope, all of that's irrelevant. Now it's mm, dead. Mm. Fuck that guy. Mm. Fuck, fuck him straight up his fucking makeup asshole. Do you think he wears makeup there as well? <laughs> Actually, I'd never thought about it until oh. now. Now I'm kind of upset that I'm thinking about it. But uh, but do you feel you feel me like that? Yeah, that yeah, yeah. I, it's it's an it's an evolution in a way. I mean, or uh, musically, it's an evolution. It's it's a frame of mind, and it it it's it's uh, it's an expression of an emotion. Yeah, but but it could be expressed like you're saying. You know, I don't know. Twenty years ago, it was a four piece, or thirty years ago, four piece. You know, bass, guitar, drums, and a singer. In 10 years from now, it could be a different instrument, but it's the same emotion that is being expressed or, you know, a mind state of mind. Yeah, and if somebody writes a song like, hey, I'm going to go out, I'm going to get drunk, I'm going to go party, I'm going to get in a fist fight. And that mm. song, that emotional, emotional context of that song is still rock and roll. Yeah, but you mentioned earlier, when we were talking about this fuck you song, would never have passed through... The filters yeah, of the, of, of uh, the CeeLo, what's a CeeLo Green? Yeah. Is that his name? And if you if you take now, like um I mean, people are being t- removed from platforms, you know, that oh we're gonna shut down this guy's Twitter because his opinions or his ideas don't fit with the mainstream. Do you think that this could happen with music? That that simply some music I mean I mean it's been tried. I mean they put censorship stickers on, on music in, in the eighties and nineties and it didn't do anything, you know. And but I mean I go on YouTube and I try to listen to 
uh, what's his name, JC, 99 Problems. And most of the time I find the beeped version, you know, when uh, the bitch ain't one, you know, like because it's not allowed to say bitch. Yeah, I, I think those are those are two different things. They, mm. uh, I, I'm, I'm still kind of observing and studying the situation. Mm. The, the early censorship, uh, which came from the uh, Christian coalition in the United States, I wouldn't call that uh, cancel culture. I, I think that was just f- fucking ridiculous. Fanatics. Attempt the same people that were burning witches in mm. Salem, the same people that said, like, video games are the devil, rock and roll is the devil, everything is the devil, you know, trans is the, the devil. These people, like, every generation, something is the devil, something needs to be dealt with. Mm. It's never the devil, and it's never dealt with. And fuck those people. Cancel culture now in my opinion, is it's, it, it's evolving and I'm hesitant but inclined to call it consequence culture. It's not cancel culture. It's not that, uh, that you know, let's say that that's a kind of a blowback mm. For uh, however many years, let's let's take one thing in, in particular: like, uh, the harassment and sexual sexual uh, abuse of of women in the artistic and, industry, uh, yeah. industry mm. which is a real thing. Mm. And then finally, a woman goes, "Uh, uh-uh, fuck you," and and then there's consequences for people that did that. I'm completely for that. I think mm. that's brilliant. Mm. But in the um, in that context where suddenly the oppressed have a voice and they have power and they express that power that they've never had before, I imagine there's going to be a lot of other people that are caught up in that wave. Mm. Before there is going to be an equalization, there's going to be a lot of casualties, mm. some guilty, some not. Yeah. And again, I'm still kind of um, assessing my opinion on the things I'm taking from an individual situation mm. at a time. Mm. I'm actually happy that 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 um, that there's going to be some accountability, that there's some equalization. It's not just women; it's minorities in the mm. United States. It's mm. the black community that are finding a voice. I think that's a beautiful thing. I I, I heart, hardly support that. Mm. Now, when we talk about Dave Must uh, Dave Mustaine's bass player, I don't know all of that, all of the details there, mm. but it sounds to me like from the evidence that I've seen so far that maybe he's just an innocent guy that got caught up in that wave. I don't know. Mm. I don't I don't mm. know all the details. Yeah, and there is always I mean in every in every transformation and change of society there's always going to be collateral damage, that for sure. But what what I, you know, I mean I'm I'm a lawyer by education and you know, we we were taught in law school that the just justice is blind and there is due process. People get to be you know tri- investigated, trialed, and 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 so on. And what we've what, what happens now is that the consequences of a possible wrongdoing, you actually get them served before even you've been taken to the police. If you're going to be taken to the police, and and I. And I have a hard time dealing with that. Maybe it's just because of my law degree. You know what I mean, like my my thinking process. But I, I always think if this was my dad or my brother or my sister or or whomever it is that is being accused of something and then being, in some way, executed publicly, or deplatformed or 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 pushed out to the edges. 
I don't know. I mean, we we we've been taught to forgive, to to give a second chance, to you know. I'm not saying that if someone is a rapist, then yeah, send them to jail and keep them there for a long time. And the same if they kill someone or whatever it is that they do. But just based on uh, hearsay, it's it's a tricky. It's I think we are on a slippery slope. But anyway, I mean, yeah, we, we that, that's a that's a subject for a five hour. Yeah, I I I, I agree with you in. In theory, but I mean, if a if let's say you have a bully who's been uh, bullying a person or a class of people for a long time, mm. and suddenly they start punching back, and that bully goes, "Oh, I'm the victim." That is something that actually happens quite a bit with the with the, the Christians in the United States, for example. As soon as gay people on equal rights. Oh, you're oppressing you're you're oppressing my religion. Mm. You know, these people are crying victim when they're absolutely not victims. Mm. And that the consequence of uh, like the the karma as it were is can be ugly. Mm. Look, if you put me into that situation where I have to fight back, I'm going to fight back I'm not going to fight back fair. I'm angry. I'm going to fight back with some fucking, and I'm going to use whatever fucking tool there is. If mm. you hit me with a stick, I'm going to drive a tank over you. Mm. Is that right? No. According to the law, according to the eyes of justice, absolutely not. But is it, uh, is it ridiculous? I, I don't think so. I no, think no. I mean, I can understand the motives. And, and, I, and I think... In that sense, I mean, I totally agree with you when it comes to kind of a, how do you say, a greater good of a larger group of people or or, or, or a, a group of oppressed people or, or, or something like that, then I'm all for it. I'm, I'm, I'm more thinking that, you know, okay, if, if we want to solve these things on Twitter and Instagram, let's just then save ourselves the cost of, of the justice system because it's it's we're obviously... The consequence of, of being sentenced for, I don't know, whatever it would be, like a, a, a female teacher is accused of uh, flirting with a male student. Uh, if, if that gets settled on social media and, and in the public eye, then her career is over. And when it finally comes to being investigated and, and, and uh, trialed, uh, no one cares about the result. She's going to be out of a job, has no way back. It's it's just I, I don't know I I think those when I see those individuals I, I'm totally you know, gay rights yeah give them all the rights that they want all of them because they're not taking from anybody else Th that that's not at the expense of anyone if if a Christian thinks that that's that's because some people want to be gay is a, a, a oppression of their religion it's it's just stupidity they need to be rehabilitated you know but it's the other thing that I'm talking about but I I think yeah we we. I, I agree. There, there are some absolutely um, there. There are some unfair things that have happened, but in in a in a way where we let's say Donald Trump has been deplatformed because he's a miserable cunt, and that a lot of people have been tangibly hurt because of his words. That that motherfucker somehow being equated with this innocent school teacher where he's able to say, see, this innocent person was, was damaged by this movement. Mm. And that in some way, I am 
equated with that. No, he just had consequences for being a cunt. This school teacher, yeah, that sucks. It's unfortunate. But they're not the same thing. No, they're no, not even remotely I, the no, same. No, no, I, I know, and I think, but I, I, I mean, on the other hand, that's again the lawyer in me speaking. I mean, to to remove a, a democratically elected president of any country from social media is it, it will it will it's happened. I mean, we have. They wouldn't even take uh, the guy in North Korea off social media. They wouldn't take Lukashenko in Belarus off social media. But that, that this Jeff. This is a can of worms. Oh, we should get we should get like four or five opposing viewpoints yeah. and have another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so three best guitar players of all time. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, my father took me to see Andre Segovia mm. when I was thirteen, I think. Uh, Andre Segovia was the first um, guitar player to. Um, uh, to arrange entire symphonies into this one instrument mm-hmm. and present them as uh, as a whole, and and actually turned the guitar into the, uh, into the serious instrument that it is. My understanding, in in a classical sense. I mean, there were other like blues guitar players that were mm-hmm. were long before him. Um. That's a tough question. I really like, loved Eddie Van Halen's playing. Mm. I always wished that I could hear him play something without the constraints of pop music or or record companies. I mm. wanted to hear him jam with like Stevie Wonder, for example. Yeah, that would have been divine. Yeah, uh, that would have been a good mix, actually. Um, who else? That's a tough question because, I mean, Satriani is brilliant, but mm. is he more brilliant than Jimi Hendrix? I don't know. Mm. Jimi Hendrix is. Mm. Jimi Hendrix had this groove. I mean, Eric Clapton as well, somehow. I mean, th- th- there's a lot of those guys that had some magic. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Jimi Hendrix on that. And Satriani, if, if, if he heard me say that, he would probably agree. So that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, you're working on that album. Is that and because I actually interviewed your girlfriend earlier, Dashi Stardust, and uh, she's a musician as well, extremely talented, great voice. Um, check her out as well, guys. Um, and you is that the album that you're working on? That's the corporate. She's with you on that one. Or is that is that a separate project? No, no, I'm working on my own album just on my own. Sometimes she helps me with some background vocals or something. Yeah. But we're doing her own album as a separate thing. Yeah. Uh, but that's a a exploratory thing. Dashi is uh, I think she's brilliant, mm. but Dashi has this uh, journey that she needs to take, where she needs to discover how good she is because mm. she doesn't know it yet. Mm. She doesn't realize how good she is, and I she think ha- she said the same. She said that my boyfriend keeps telling me that I'm better than I think I am. I, th- I think she said those yeah. exact words. There's 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 something in her uh a an emotional barrier mm. that I think she eventually when she passes it that she's gonna shine. I think the world is gonna know her name. Mm. I think she's absolutely amazing. She's mm. brilliant. And for somebody who's not 
uh, an English native speaker. Wow. Her poetry is fantastic. Oh. She oh. sings in English, and she her lyrics are great and are emotional. Mm. Her melodies, mm. she abs- absolutely brilliant. Mm. So but, you're working on those two, yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, I think that's guys. I mean, so I, I I really want people to check you out. So so that they can find you on YouTube. That's Jeff Tyson. G E O F G E O F F T Y S O N. Yeah, the Tyson kind of like Mike Tyson. And uh, uh, you're on SoundCloud as well, right? Actually, I don't, I'm not really sure, but um, and uh, then there's Spotify. There's you can find it on Spotify. Yeah, Spotify, all the digital outlets, iTunes, all that stuff. Uh, if you want a uh, physical copy, I've got vinyls and CDs at my website, jefftyson.com, mm. um, and I don't know. I I you think got, I'm, yeah, and there's an Instagram. There's a Facebook page. Yeah, I'm pretty much everywhere. That yeah. you be Pornhub, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's where I. Find, um, yeah, what's his name? Gregory. Oh, Is Gregory that, Dark. Yeah. yeah, Gregory Dark. <laughs> produced by Gregory Dark. Yeah, guys, d- definitely check Jeff out and and his his stuff and and um, good solid rock music and and actually, it's also worth it to go into YouTube and and check out T Right. Um, that's T slash Right. Or slash, there's slash, right? Da- dash. Dash. T dash right. Um, and uh, there are also some funny videos of of Jeff uh, topless in the studio and being a rock star um, <laughs> as a very young man. Uh, follow the show. That's uh, Facebook, The Bunker, How the Hell Did You End Up Here? Uh, Instagram, Bunker Prague. Um, and if you like looking at me and Jeff on a static photo on YouTube, then I have a YouTube channel now, uh, The Bunker, How the Hell Did We End Up Here? So I upload all the episodes there and uh, found out uh, that people actually do listen to podcasts on YouTube when they're at work. So if you're one of those, then you can just plug it in there and uh, listen. Um, I think that's kind of it, yeah. Um, COVID is ending, Jeff. When are you going to play your first concert? Uh, It's first opportunity that is given to me mm. i'm ready to go and i'm gonna be there i, I hope it's not gonna be somewhere in china or something but uh, somewhere <laughs> a little bit closer well i don't know if i uh, if i have to go back to the street corners and cafes i'll do that yeah guys thanks for listening jeff thanks for coming thanks for having me <laughs>